Welcome to the Careless Talk Climbing Podcast with myself, Aidan Roberts, and my co-host, Sam Pryor. Hello. This week, we have my coach joining us, Ollie Tor. Um, I've worked with Ollie for about four years now, uh, and I've known him since I was much younger. Um, and so, obviously, speak to him quite a lot, of generally about my training and life alike. So, um, I tried to ask some questions uh, were I to be a uh, just someone interested in climbing, not someone who knows Ollie so well. But yeah, I've uh, worked with Ollie for many years and uh, really appreciate his kind of um, uh, perspective on training, but also how climbing fits into my, like the context of my life as well. Um, so I think uh, we delve into some training chat, but also quite a lot around psychology and everything around training too, um, uh, which we touch upon uh, more explicitly as well. Um, But yeah, really interesting chat with Ollie um, and hope you enjoy listening. Yeah, great chat. Um, And that leaves it to me to say that if you're enjoying the podcast and would like to support us, we have a Patreon page. Uh, This podcast is supported 100% by our patrons, so a big thanks to them. Uh, And if you do like it and you want us to uh, help uh, keep it going, then uh, please do check out our Patreon page. We have a couple of tiers, one which has a bit more content. Aidan's going to be doing another one of his brilliant uh, Finland write-ups to go up on there uh, this week. Uh, And a other tier, which also gives access to the Discord uh, channel where you can get a little heads up about guests suggest guests suggest questions and just generally chat with a bunch of like-minded climbers um but yeah thanks for listening thank you hey. hi Ollie. how are you doing hey good thanks how are you guys yeah good yeah. Thanks. good to see you how's your how's your dinner <laughs> yeah what what have you what have you got there aiden it's just here yeah. i made a um orange well, mushrooms yeah, yeah, forage mushrooms. They are a crucial part of almost every meal at the moment. So, um, uh, yeah, I've, I made a, a ramen. Um, I've got some kimchi in there. Yeah, it's all, all oh, lovely. Uh, it's actually, I'd made it pre. I, I didn't just message you being like, oh, I got back in. I'm going to make some dinner and then like cook up a ramen with a like, <laughs> I made it. I made it a few days ago, so it's just like leftovers. <laughs> I, I wouldn't have put that past you. Actually, I'm just going to finish the bread proving up, and then I can, I can get yeah. started. Yeah. Sorry, guys. Mind if I just push it back? I'm just going to whip up a quick. <laughs> just got an hour's worth of marinating to do. And then... <laughs> I must admit, I did a. I was in a group meeting the other day with uh, a bunch of people, and I've just started trying to learn how to bake bread. And I was like, I'm really sorry. I've just got to get the door. So I went down, like flipped over a couple of times, put it back to prove, and I had to run back up and said, oh, sorry, really inconvenient, but I knew that timing was going to happen for sure. <laughs> it's scheduled in meeting interruption. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a problem when um, everyone during the lockdowns got into uh, making bread and they had the freedom with their like routines to if they were making sourdough, they were able to like stretch and fold the dough every 15 minutes for an hour. And then suddenly they're like back in working life and they're like, oh, I can't tend my valuable little sourdough child 14 <laughs> it ta- times a day. <laughs> it takes so long. 
I was like, I was like, all these, all these comp climbers, they're making, they're baking all the time. It seems to be like a strong youth kind of thing at the moment. And now I'm like, God, they've got so much time on their hands. This is amazing. I've got to, I've got to do it more. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna say I was early to the bandwagon on that one. I, uh, I, uh, I think you stopped doing it when it became cool, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't want to be too mainstream, you know. I, thought, I was like, oh, <laughs> gotta be, gotta be a bit different. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. I, I was, I was big into my baking during when I first moved to Sheffield, actually, uh, during my gap year, classic gap year activity. Well, um, you, you brought me a couple of uh, loaves of bread that were very gratefully received. Um, oh yeah, that was that was that will have been the lockdown time, right? Would it be yeah, yeah. the lockdown time? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just, just after, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Which is actually quite a good uh place to start. We're doing an interview, so we'll try and be a little bit a little bit professional. But <laughs> in terms of <laughs> for those listening, <laughs> Ollie is my Ollie, I guess, Ollie Tor is my coach. Uh and uh I started working with Ollie um towards the end of 2019 i think um yeah uh yeah if my timeline is correct but i've known you for quite a few years uh you'd like would chaperone some of the and like be a coach on some of the gb youth climbing competitions um so i remember we did like a few trips where you were there as well um and i i was at a point in my climbing in 2019 where i hadn't had a really had a climbing coach um uh and so i was kind of just winging it and uh i had a few habits which i began to acknowledge uh the value of a coach and so i was kind of like having a think about uh yeah who i'd like to approach for coaching and this is actually quite a funny the way we started working with each other i actually don't know if i've told you this but uh, I was thinking about it the other day because I thought it would be a good way to introduce you as a guest. Sounds and, like uh, you're about to say, I, Ollie was my third choice of coach. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm nervous. I'm nervous. <laughs> After getting shot down by my first choice. <laughs> no, well, I was I was kind of thinking about like who I'd like to work with and I kind of had begun to appreciate it. It was like quite important to have a lot of trust in a coach and like kind of the I knew the dynamic of working with a coach changed depending like on how you interacted on a personal level and I had a lot of uh when I was a youth climbing climber I just remember having a lot of like deeply nerdy training conversations with you on like the various like uh, car journeys or train journeys and um but the like resounding thought that kind of really made me like kind of reach out and be like oh yeah obviously um was I remember I remember I think it was after a youth comp and it was like it will have been the following competition or team training um and we'd done loads of traveling that day and I think it was after the comp you'd maybe like were quite psyched just because you've been surrounded by climbing but not doing a bunch of climbing but you're telling me about how when you got back to Sheffield after like a trip and a day of traveling you went to the school room at like 1am <laughs> because ah. you, have a, you have like a key fob that you can just go in at any time there and i remember you just got back from like a day of traveling so sight that you went for a training session after i think traveling. i uh, i think that might have been the occasion where i got totally screwed over by it might have been that one where i got screwed over by the snow as well so i went there totally psyched out my mind trained from like Maybe I think it might have been like 12 day one until you know 2 30, something like that. And I was like, okay, this is ridiculous. <laughs> Looked outside and it started snowing. And I lived on one of the steepest hills in Sheffield. 
and I couldn't get my car back home and I ended up having to like ditch it, like kind of slightly parked to skew in the curb and then have to walk home. I must have got home at about 3 a.m. at <laughs> work at 9 a.m. How was the session though? Was it worth it? Was it was good. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it was good. I was so psyched. I mean, it was, uh, yeah, I mean, when you're surrounded by, you know, all these guys all for a whole trip and you're just watching climbing on stuff and some of the coaches kind of used to train a little bit like in the Innsbruck spray wall and stuff um trying to get involved but you're kind of there trying to behave and not thrash too much yourself because you're trying to be a good influence and um yeah I remember just going home but you were at the age where there was a group of you that were uh you know sort of 17 18 starting to explore misbehaving a little bit and <laughs> like sneaking out between the competitions and trying not to let the coaches find out and I always remember oh, I, re- I really oh, yeah was it that it. obvious? <laughs> well, well, it was that obvious because uh, I had to take home a group of uh, the climbers myself, um, which I don't think you would do now. Um, and I remember going to Luke's <laughs> to pick up Luke in the morning, and he'd snuck out with you and one of the other people, and uh, he was so hungover, uh, <laughs> and I was like, Luke, what are you doing? The taxis here. We're going to go to the airport. And he and he just looked like he'd you know been run over the night before. He looked so hungover, and I was like, "For God's sake, Luke! I had one responsibility is to get you home safely, and you you started it, and you're still drunk." <laughs> you're just trying to trying to play it off as in like, "Oh yeah, a bit bit groggy. It was a big comp there yesterday." <laughs> exactly. It was like, "Oh, I think my body's just sore," and I was like, "I can smell the booze." <laughs> and this is the under thirteen team, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I remember the uh, I remember the geeky training chats. I uh, I specifically remember like some of them about because I think um, the first time you came and stayed at my house when you wanted a place to crash for a lead competition, I think it was. I was like, um, I wasn't in. I was working, and my uh, ex girlfriend was in the house. And I was like, oh, Aiden's a nice lad. Or just just go around. She'll let you in. And you can you can hang out. And I walked back and I was like, oh, I wonder they'll be chatting and having dinner and stuff. And you were sitting there in like uh, in the living room watching Kung Fu Panda the, the night before the comp. I was well, like, oh, is, it, is this your prep? And you're like, yeah, it's pretty relaxed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Got to take my mind off things. Yeah, then, wow. I actually don't remember watching. I mean, I remember really liking Kung Fu Panda. So. <laughs> but I remember that trip. Yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah that was actually ah yeah you gave me a fingerboard that day <laughs> yeah yeah that, that's when the geeky training chat really took a new level so yeah yeah how, how long have you been coaching ollie um so i did little bits throughout uni uh so i went to uni in 20 uh 2009 um did little kind of bits around then and i worked did like snc for like mountain bikers footballers um climbers and, and sort of loads of outdoor sports Mm. um usually people at the university and stuff so uh and then after that I pretty much started climbing coaching immediately but you know the normal way of working in a wall um I started doing like training plans for people like people that were coming into the wall and helping them doing like circuit training and stuff um so yeah pretty much since then um 20 2012 I'd say is when I, I really got into it and when did you link up with Tom to create lattice because that's i mean for anyone who doesn't know (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, yeah, we've done so, a bad job of introducing all that. <laughs> we'll do it in the intro. We'll do it in the intro. <laughs> <laughs> so I I worked at the wall that Tom was a part owner of in uh, Loughborough. So that's where my my mum was living at the time after uni, and I was travelling a bit. And I started doing loads of training for people there, and I knew he'd done plans, and I was. I wasn't involved in the Sheffield scene at all. I kind of knew knew him as a wide boy, or one of the wide boys. And uh, I remember going up to do an assessment with him. Actually, no, I think I, I'd stayed at his house or something and like done really well on one of his finger strength scores when I'd gone out drinking. And he said, oh, you should come and do an assessment. And I went up there and I said, cool, I'm going to do an assessment and I'll pay for a plan I can't afford to do many months but I, I want you to know that I, I'm partly doing this because I want to steal everything um <laughs> that's uh that's my intention because I'm doing this anyway um so I did that trained with him for a little bit and I was I was building up my own profile in toolkits and uh carrying on stuff that I did from research um and then he approached me in like 2014 to team up so we worked for like a year and then registered Platis in 2015 um, because we went through about a million names and landed on that one because it was quick and easy to decide. I think you, I think his wife actually said, well, just call it Lattice and get it over with. Because <laughs> you were using that Lattice structure for training. Do you still do that now for assessments? No, no. I think some some walls still use it because um, it's still like a really good profiling toolkit to get you along of the way. But um, we've moved forward because uh, most of the reason is it takes up loads of space in climbing walls. Um, so it's really hard to, you know, get have it more open for people, get more data in. Um, so it, we've kind of ended up developing more from that. But we did start on using the lattice board for a long, long period of time. And I think the main thing to remember with that as well is there was literally nothing out there that was doing anything kind of close to it. So we were kind of just going off the ground and like I'd read so much research or all the research that was sort of out there and I was using a fingerboard, but um, yeah, Tom's kind of method was, was pretty uh, inventory. If that's a good word, uh, it's good. It's a good way of uh, getting the ball rolling. So yeah, we we don't actually use that anymore in internally anyway. Okay, yeah. so so you did come to coaching quite early then. It wasn't like because because there's such a typical way into anything in climbing uh, where you become almost a pro climber for a while, and then you do that for ten years, and then you're like okay, now I need to try and diversify into something else and you become a coach or a nutritionist or something else. Whereas you were in right early doors. Yeah, I've um, I've always been obsessed with sort of the improvement and sort of different athletes and the individualization of, of kind of performance. And so I was always interested in it, regardless of whether it was climbing or not. And then climbing was just the sport I was passionate about. But to be honest, it was actually... Uh, that was one of the most tricky bits about me becoming a coach was like I had so many times where I would hear really good climbers that were doing bits of coaching on the side uh, being like oh you, you don't want to listen to him he doesn't know what he's talking about he's only climbed this um, and I remember like I've specifically heard people saying it to other parents when I coach youth teams saying oh he doesn't know what he's talking about he can't climb that hard um, and yeah, it was like a really real barrier for me. 
and I was kind of because I'm I'm not particularly interested in my own social media at all. It's not something I I'm not interested in. It doesn't uh, appeal to me whatsoever. I've I've tried to play the game a little bit, but I don't like it. But when I started to perform at a high level, um, I had to have that strategic step of saying, look, I will publicize having climbed a hard boulder. And Tom made a real point of it. And he very kindly made an effort to say that I, because I did train him for a while and he got a lot stronger. Um, But that was a strategy as well to get a bit of attention because I was literally not breaking into the coaching world because I wasn't publicizing my any climbing achievements. Which is quite a crazy concept, right? In Nova Sport, is that really acknowledged as a phenomenon? Then, like, you look at tennis, cycling. uh, In smaller uh, sports, yeah. Smaller sports, it's, yeah, still a thing, isn't it? Yeah. 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 I I think when when there's uh, either a long history um, in the sport and and it becomes a pattern. uh, But you see it, like, say, you know, a football manager, you're seeing it now, a lot of the ex-pros are becoming football managers. And instantly they're giving this credit. Oh, I yes, wish they were yeah. there. They did it. Yeah. And you're like, well, yeah, but, if, you know, if I saw someone who'd run a really good business and they, you know, made a huge business, they'd manage loads of people and they'd organize loads of stuff, I'd give that just as much weight personally as the yes. guy who was a pro footballer. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's fascinating to see it still happening in massive sports like that. Frank Lampard is a bad manager. And yet there he is managing in the premiership on the strength of his playing days. Um, you know a lot about football, Sam. I like football. Yeah. Uh, anyway, that <laughs> that's a tangent we definitely don't want to go down. <laughs> but, but you get the same thing in other aspects of climbing, like in route setting, it happens a lot as well, right? Like uh, we spoke to some route setters and like often like XGB or like professional climbers will be able to pick up route setting work quite easily, even if they don't really have a portfolio of like a lot of route setting. The only thing I will say on that, though, is that in my experience, really good climbers tend to make really good route setters because they really understand movement. Not mm-hmm. 100% of the time, but like particularly people who are so good that they were on the GB team, they probably know how to move. Yeah. Um, but, but you can understand like, movement really well and not really know how yeah, to hold it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's- <laughs> I, I, I do Very like true. when you uh, you find out the person from the other way around though sometimes like I think for me I consider myself as a you know I kind of got into the industry being a coach first like you said Sam and someone who in my eyes and I might have this totally wrong someone like Jake Mason who I've done a bit of setting with like I I was introduced to him as a setter a really passionate setter amazing with movement and stuff and we did like this whole day uh, up in Sheffield setting and then he was like oh yeah I've just got really close to the ace and it was like a you know, an asterisk on the conversation. And I was like, oh my God, that's amazing. And um, I could clearly tell he was a good climber, but I was so just bothered about his setting. I thought he was an amazing setter. And that was the that was the interest of the conversation. It wasn't just climbing first. It was that was like a bolt on. Uh so I do I do appreciate people for their, you know, you can see where their efforts gone. They've not just transferred some knowledge in climbing to to another professional area of expertise. Mm. Yeah, which is quite nice, isn't it? Like, because in many ways, uh, I feel like uh, there's like comfort in like riding out your achievements, but like it's nice to get there like via credibility in the actual field where you're working in alone. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we did actually, 
I think it is an interesting point. Um, and we did actually have a Patreon question on it because even though you, you have climbed uh, hard boulders, Ollie, you coach the Roberts brothers, uh, you know, best in the world, uh, you know, really top level athletes. They're actually no relation. Um, yeah, I, there's so many people are going. <laughs> I got that mistake enough already. <laughs> it's so funny, though, isn't it? I like it. I think I, I think we should let it let it keep going, let that perpetuate. But like, have you ever suffered from any kind of like imposter syndrome or any feeling like people expect you to be a world class climber as well, just because you coach? Is that still going on? Um, never with the athletes. Definitely, I had it a lot with the general climbing community for sure. Um, yeah, at the, at the beginning, I was definitely kind of nervous working with sort of better, better people. But um, one, I realised that a lot of climbers who are good, again, they're, they're really good at climbing. They've not spent the time kind of looking into how to get good in different ways they've they've kind of ridden their strengths and there's a lot of curiosity there but it, it doesn't mean you've not got something to offer which i think is always a nice way to get confidence and there's definitely been a few athletes who i was a little bit nervous starting with because they're on we've had a lot of really elite athletes starting with us and it's kind of like you've already someone's already at a high level so you, you could go down there's not it's not just upwards you could make things worse if you're not careful and you need to get that buying and so on so there's nervousness there but never imposter syndrome for me personally but i've definitely had it a lot with the climbing community and it took me a long time to get used to that you know climbing around uh going to the wall in sheffield or going to the crag here we've got so many good climbers around and oh how come you just fell off that that warm-up or uh you're, you yeah but how are you not stronger than that like what what's going on and it generally is all in your head it's not always but um yeah i definitely definitely had it in the past but i think these days i just don't really care anymore and i've worked with so many top level athletes they're just so nice and respectful and you know they're really interested they're psyched that it just doesn't matter anymore um and i'm trying to make sure that other coaches I work with never feel that as well because they shouldn't. Um, if you've got something to offer, you've got something to offer. And I think it's the same to me as if someone's at the crag and, you know, someone's climbing six grades lower than you bouldering and they suggest something, you don't just go, you don't know what you're talking about. You go, oh yeah, thanks for your input. Yeah. And then you actually think about it and they could be just showing you something that you've never seen before, like a foothold or a, a movement. And it's just from a different viewpoint um and the more expertise behind that viewpoint uh in that particular area that particular crag or whatever the more important it is so uh yeah i've I've had mixed not with the athletes yes with the public or community mm. i did want to ask about this because i feel there's quite a intricate balance probably within any sport um of like how much of your coaching um or and your advice is born out of rigorous scientific research and how much is anecdotal yeah definitely it's a it's a really good point like the to begin with and this is probably where like you say your safety zone changes like to begin with i came out of university i was really on it with research and the theoretical stuff um and also trying to understand sort of like what you're seeing around you so one thing i've always tried to 
do is always just observe what people are saying you know like these podcasts it's a really good example where if you know if you look at when the things that most people listen to uh, like sections of podcasts it's the bit where someone goes this is why I, I ate today or this is my pull-up workout and that's the bit people go back to because they're looking for that uh anecdotal evidence like you said so I think because my experience wasn't too good in terms of climbing uh you know the amount of years I've been climbing was pretty uh, minimal I started at 18 um and then I had really good research I'd relied on that more but over the years it's definitely changed because these days like you know most sports science or any study research study has got so many holes in it it doesn't matter what it's on so you've got to take it with a pinch of salt you just take the little nugget of it then you've got your experience personal experience which is biased and then you've got all your anecdotal evidence which is often misreported uh and the more that i get to know like high level athletes the better i understand that that can sometimes be misreported because you know everyone has their own narrative about what they're doing um and i think if you're a high level athlete you'll that narrative becomes stronger because it helps you perform so it's just building those together. But I think that's, for me, the biggest strength that I have now is the fact that I work with a coaching team. So we do uh, like these like sessions every two weeks where everyone comes in, all the coaches that I work with. Um, we either have an external presenter like Huffy, for example, talks us through and we just debate for ages. And then and because everyone works with their own clients, like I work with you, I can talk about stuff that I found works with you and they'll go, Oh, this worked with this person. Do you think what you did with Aiden worked with them? And I'm like, yeah, maybe what you did will work with Aiden as well. We just debate and debate and debate. And that kind of pulls together all of those three elements on a much bigger scale so that everyone's kind of upskilled. And that's where I find the safety now is safety and having more experience that I could possibly have on my own. Yeah, it's like uh, your sam- your anecdotal sample expands into a much bigger network as well, right? Because I think climbing is definitely a sport that's not understood enough to like uh, mitigate all like the random anomalies. There are just like a load of climbing freaks, and like, yeah, yeah. They, have no, they have they have no right to be as good as they are. And it's good to have some of the freaks on the team as well because. I mean, there's there's such good climbers, the the coach, like the people I work with, and they've all got these weird anomaly experiences themselves. I mean, like Josh Ibbotson, example, is the youngest person to climb 9B, or at least in the UK. Um, and he's got all these like experiences from his growing up and all these strengths and weaknesses that I can't relate to. And I am not currently working with uh, anyone, well, apart from like, say, Toby, and Aaron, who are sitting in that category, but the other coaches can use that as well. Uh, so he's got his own abnormal experiences, which are amazing, and he brings that to the table. So yeah, it's 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 really nice. It's I mean that's kind of why I got into um, like why I used to have all these chats with you, like really geeking out. It's just because I really enjoy it. Um, I enjoy those conversations. And. Do you think that we will get to a point where we know enough about finger strength and we've done enough studies that we actually know what the best thing is for people or will it always be too individual because people respond differently? I think it'll always be too individual. Mm. I just, I think we'll get further along, um, but it's a long way off because the way that, you know, studies work, you have to 
have validity and reliability in the most basic way before you go to the interesting study. So like to understand, is this texture on a fingerboard the right texture? Is it valid? Is it reliable? Okay, we've proven that. Okay, do people grip it in the same way? And so on. So it's quite a long way from that. But even when that happens, like we all have different finger anatomy and then we all have different shoulder anatomy. I mean, the two Roberts brothers, for example, they, they hold holds very differently, despite the same, uh, yeah, they're, uh, the same think, genetic, same genetic, genetic <laughs> clones. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just, and I, I love that. I think, I think it'd be so boring if we were able to find out. I mean, like, I think people potentially think we're trying to make the sport more controlled or boring by data collection and so on. But all we're trying to do is fast track information that we give back to climbers, take a little piece of that puzzle when someone starts working with us by doing a bit of testing. Testing alone doesn't mean anything. And then the coach kind of gets involved and uses all that anecdotal experience and all that to actually make decisions. Um, So I think it's kind of, it's a nice way to fast track things, but it'll always be individual. Yeah, I'm actually... I'm I'm glad that you've said that because that was my feeling as well. And also just because this is the problem with asking every pro, what's your fingerboard routine? <laughs> like, and expecting every pro who's got strong fingers or people conceived to have strong fingers to have a magic pill because whatever they are doing, there is a very good chance it will not work for whoever's listening because it's just depending on way too many external factors. Yeah, I think the... Um... The reason why there's often like weight on those things as well is is kind of what I touched on earlier is there's like a massive expectation effect in in physiology. You know, if you expect something to happen, they're found in research, it often will perpetuate. So even like medical research that's showing this, the nocebo effect, I see it all the time with climbers that come into training with us and they've got a bias against training in a structured way even though they go to the wall and they try and do sets and reps every week really and they're they just terminate different they're not terminate training but they are um if they come into training with a expectation that it's not right or it's not for them they have like a a real nocebo effect where it doesn't work as well whilst those who come in and they believe they're on board they're psyched they believe in what they're doing they always get more out of it and i think the only way to if you're a questioning person, which I think you are, Aiden, I think this is why like we work well together, is we'll talk about all these things, we'll debate it out, because then like you feel like you've got belief in the system because you understand it. Um so I think like these pro fingerboard routines and stuff, and you know, the twice a day and all of that stuff, the person's got to believe in it, they've got to sell it because they're selling it to themselves. And that was why mm. it works. So yeah, it's kind of one of those. It's um, it's a bit of chicken and egg. If if you believe in something, it will be better. It's not. It might not be a hundred percent, but it's going to help. Um, I think it's a good point. What the part that of like our coaching relationship I've always quite appreciated is generally I'm never like really just doing something just because I've been told to do it. I understand why it's there in context to my own climbing, which I think comes back to something you mentioned a bit earlier in the conversation where you t- spoke about like. Uh, what was a phrase is it like miscommunication or um yeah yeah misrepresenting what they're doing yeah 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 yeah. information about climbing is so easy people can associate credibility with people's like achievement 
because if there is a really good climate as like this has worked really well for me it's understandable that somebody would be like oh okay i want to see how that will work for me but like that's only like relevant in context to them and like all the other things they're doing and how they climb um actually understanding all of this advice it's quite hard to decipher yeah it's 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 always context over content and i think it is hard because you know like the most precious thing we have is time isn't it and as soon as you commit down a path if it's not yielding results you're suddenly like oh god it's like should that other person's i can see cause and effect there he says this fingerboard routine works for him and um this is what i think whether it's a coach or you know just a mate or something having good conversations kind of gets you so far because i mean like a good example say say in your training i remember as i think it was not last year it was the year before we had a real debate about doing really low volume and i remember like specifically being low volume works for me and you ended up joining say me and toby on some training and you couldn't hold back at all you were just like fully in there with the the power endurance volume of a root climber and you're crimping at the you, bit yeah yeah you were so <laughs> chomping at the bit but we had a discussion i was like look i i personally think that you should do a phase of this because it it'll hold you for the rest of the year we kind of discussed it we went back and forward didn't we it was like a lot of debate but then i think your natural motivation took over anyway <laughs> you got involved with the the massive sessions and then you kept sending more and more of your crimpy projects on your home board and you got stronger at that and it was kind of like oh huh, cool this is really good like this is maybe not the expected we weren't expecting this to happen just yet but that's like a piece of the puzzle and um, because we kind of talked to our we thought about how it could work what key things to look out for um to change our minds committed down the path and just stuck with it because if we changed our mind after a month when you're really knackered and you didn't have any skin left we would have changed mind and gone back the other way but actually because we just stuck on that path a little bit longer and committed to it then it ended up being all right it is also quite intuitive sport like we generally all have a relatively good idea of what works well for us speak for myself personally it's not that i'm not open-minded but i'm quite stuck in my ways and what i think works well for me climbers in general are quite obsessive and we all have these little things i have a warm-up routine which there's like psychological comfort in my warm-up routine beyond just like the physicalities of warming up i feel that that works for me and like i don't really experiment with it more much now and i feel like i have a lot of these little things which i'm like oh okay this is what works for me that i have no reason to change it but uh that was a good example of something that i felt like i was a low volume climber and i was like okay i won't do i'll never really do more than two days on and like if i had a hard session i'd have like an easy session the next day and then like rest i was like okay low volume less training like and in my head i was oh, then i'm fresh and recovered and high quality attempts almost convinced that that was right for me and so i was quite reticent to commit to being tired and my skin's gonna be bad and surely i'll slip off the holds when i get finger injuries because i'm just climbing on tired and i had all these like barriers that like i was really reluctant to let go of it was actually fine it worked it worked out well and like i'm a convert is this something you find working with clients or see generally in the climbing community uh generally people are quite stuck in their ways or maybe there's a lack of like open-mindedness to like experiment with people's historical routines i think i think maybe the people that are um earlier on in their climbing journey 
um, and haven't climbed for as many years are maybe sometimes a little too open-minded and they look around too much so they don't stick on the same path and learn what works for them and find these routines. And then the better and better, I think, climbers get and the more experience, I think that's when they become less and less open-minded because they've found the patterns that work for them. So that's when I'd say it's time to open up your mind a little bit again and start experimenting. Um, it's exactly the same for you. If you took um, a climber who's been climbing for a couple of years, if they flip-flop between doing really high volume and, and no volume and trying to do this fingerboard routine, that fingerboard routine, they're gonna, they will probably see gains, but it's going to be really hard to predict and actually find out what works for them. And that can be really frustrating. But like you say, when you've got all these routines in place, I think it's really good to test the system. Like I've worked with um, a guy, or actually he's, he's just done a, another podcast recently and he got he was got a knee injury um, and he had such a strong narrative around the style of climber he was. But he knew he always wanted to climb more crimpy, kind of more like your style. Um, and... I was just like, well, this is an opportunity to have a go at that. And he flips completely and he absolutely loves it, but he'd always consider it was impossible for him. It's like that whole narrative. Um, James Pearson, exactly the same. He had a narrative of not having, he said it was physiologically impossible for me to have endurance. Like I don't have the <laughs> physiology to operate on longer climbs. And he's clearly done quite well on multiple 9As and AB plus trad routes and so on. Um, that sounds do... like an excuse for being lazy to me. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I say this. I, look... I say this knowing James. Also, we're trying to snag James for the pod. Well, <laughs> 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 sites. <laughs> um, and to like to kind of highlight the point as well. You went from, you know, probably climbing every other day or having two rest days in a row when you're in Switzerland, and then we started training, and there was a slight. Um, I was slightly biased towards you doing more volume because I wanted you to be uh, a, a racing partner with Toby throughout winter <laughs> training season. So I was slightly biased in that front anyway. But you joined us and we must have ramped up to, you know, between 20 and 35 hours of climbing a week and sort of eight, nine hour sessions on slabs and comp wall and then going on the board and then doing four by fours. And I would say like... Aiden outperformed Toby at every step of the way, which was absolutely perfect. And I mean, you were, we did start joking about you going back to competitions when you were doing so well, but <laughs> it's like the ideal scenario. Toby had someone to chase all winter. You were getting fitter and fitter and seems to be getting stronger and stronger miraculously. Um, and I was just feeling worse and worse and <laughs> just getting, getting destroyed on a weekly basis. No, I will credit where credit's due. You stuck it out for every session and joined every day. The amount of times I was like just sitting in the car trying not to cry because I was so tired trying to drive home. I get back just being a shell of a man. Um, you guys were like, that was a great session, well site for tomorrow. And I was like, yay. Was it, was it important to you to do all the sessions yourself as well? I think it's for me it's important if if there's someone else there, like say Aiden was there this winter, and we had like a great time, and there's good vibes. I absolutely don't mind doing it. I I love that kind of effort. But I think it's really important to keep the energy high when when people are really fatigued. 
um i mean that mental component like it's all about trying to trying to work on the psychological side as well as the training like training such a good landscape to to test the mindset and to to work on your mindset like toby for instance is supposed to be performing are like you know a week into a competition in combined format when it's exhausted and if you can get that into the training scene where you've got to perform but you're around a comfortable area comfortable people everyone's trying that hard you're seeing that that is the norm um that's great good example again is if you watched him on a, a lead route and he was just hanging in there couldn't do the next move but was just trying to shake off on like a two-finger crimp like me and Aiden were doing exactly the same thing um all winter like I this winter with I think you me and Will were training and I was trying to do this long boulder that I like for multiple reps and I remember going to shake out put my hand in my short bag and I was pretty much on a jug at the time and I fell off backwards on the off the wall with my hands still in my chill bag. I was so blown up. But the whole point was you were supposed to hang in there as long as possible. And if the person who's training can see that in their partner, then, you know, it's everyone's going to the death. And I think that's a great thing. You see it in Spain all the time, like the Spanish are amazing at that. And that's kind of what I wanted to do. So, yeah, that's for me, it was important to sacrifice my body and mind for that situation (laughs) (laughs) and do do you see similarities between Aiden and Toby or are they just completely different climbers in terms of climbing style in terms of both climbing style strength and mindset sort of any kind of similarities that you see I'd say they're both more static climbers rather than naturally as bouncy um or like his dynamic. I think both can do dynamic, but if you look at the way, say Toby would climb on a lead wall, it's far less dynamic than he could be. Um, but in terms of stylistically, very, very different. Like Aiden's good at sort of high angle and wider positions. Toby keeps his wrist low, always more open-handed naturally. Um, in terms of where you generate force, Aiden's the king of deceleration. Toby's great at the catch. Um but the main uh, similarity was around just mindset and being willing to try. You know, both of like both of you would just not want to walk away from a problem. Um, it's that kind of oh, what can I learn about this? Try and do it this way. Try and do it this way. Try and do it this way. And even to the point of like, for both of you, I would be like, okay, guys, let's move on. Let's move on to the next boulder. And I had to keep stopping myself doing that, partly because like I was trying to do it to keep the rhythm of a session and not get too stuck in because if you can't do many moves you're not doing as much volume but that is the mindset that it helps both of you get to a high level um so i think it's something i try to help other people do and i try to do it myself like i'm just getting back into bouldering after a long foray into trad and uh pretty much every climb i go on now i'm just not walking away from the move even if it just feels impossible and trying to reinstill that mindset uh, instead of you know, romping up something easy and being terrified. That's like a whole really significant part or aspect of training, which is quite hard to communicate as well. You spoke a lot about that in like uh, the winter of training we had with, um, was quite brutal in like a physical sense, but uh, how like the psychological 
investment in that is I actually think is really important and maybe like not necessarily misunderstood kind of it's hard to communicate it kind of replicating those scenarios or like kind of relating those training scenarios to like the scenarios in which you perform as well and kind of like how that training isn't just a physical thing and I think that is helpful thing which is hard to like kind of communicate as well like the just the mindset of being like obviously physically really fatigued watching Toby in the World Cups this year was a great example of it. He performed so well in the lead, but the thing that stood out so much more, I feel like he could be like halfway up a route having like kind of misread a sequence and look pumped out of his mind. And you're like, ah, oh, no, he's going to blow it. And he just looked like he was fighting to the living end from halfway up to like the top. Most people look like they're cruising and then they start, their elbows start going up and they look a bit pumped and they're off two moves later. Obviously, I know Toby's physically really impressive, but like I thought that was the thing that seemed to like set him apart from the crowd as well. And mm. I found it also myself with like uh, a big difference outside climbing, like treating the say a board, a high quality board session, and treating the attempts with the same emphasis, treating it as though it was a project, kind of replicating that psychological space. Um, and I feel like that's maybe not so like understood within climbing as well, or people like maybe treat training as a physical stimulus wholly. Um, yeah. I mean, for me, like that's a prime example where I think loads of people are missing out on this. And unfortunately a lot of the British climbing comp scene anyway, and to be fair, like outdoor scene are missing because of the facilities is no one trains for the head wall. They train to get you know, it's the qualification, the two thirds, the pumpy bit, the cruising section, but not many people train for that fight. And I think one thing that we talked about loads this winter and the previous winter actually was, uh, I know you we kind of mentioned this recently, that kind of Stanford University study of, you know, learning, like how does someone learn the most? And we were kind of chatting about how we can implement this in climbing. And effectively the study's highlights were when you reach the point of frustration, that's when your brain starts working at its best to learn how to improve. So you have to push into the point of frustration and beyond it for a good chunk of time. And I think we said, I think we even set it sort of 20 minutes when you're pissed off, you're like, you've been trying the same move and you're like, hit this point of going, God's sake, this is so bad. Um, I'm going to walk away. You have to keep going for another 20 minutes because that's when you start making real uh, connections in your brain. And then like, we even got to the point didn't we geeking out in that way it was like because from an evolutionary perspective you need to be um you learn best with balance like trying to do something really balancing because if you imagine as a, as a kid or you're in an environment that's not safe and you're trying to balance as much as possible the brain's trying to figure this new world out and trying to balance your body as quickly as possible to keep you safe and if there's danger involved or any sort of inversion involved, it pushes that even further. So we would start doing like quite horrible slab moves at the start of sessions where you were balancing, you felt like you were gonna like nail yourself or even messing around with trying to learn to do handstands. And then you'd get on the board because all of a sudden your ability to learn those movements perpetuates so much more throughout the session. And if you're trying to improve at that sort of thing, um, improve a new project or a sequence or something that's when your brain makes far quicker connections and we did that quite a bit over the summer didn't we and I remember even as messaging you were like um you even messaged me a couple of times at one point saying yep well into the frustration zone now 
just like <laughs> an angry face on your board or on a project and I was like sweet stick with it and that's yeah. the sort of thing which like we got to do with that kind of you know scene that we created uh that is where we can like a place where we can really draw from what is much more rigorous science the, the this research was done completely out of the context of um climbers i think it had some reference to maybe basketball or something but like was really about like understanding a learning movement pattern i guess is a concept of like a really well-used term is like muscle memory which i don't know if that's particularly scientifically rigorous but like and you'll have the feeling where you will be trying a move and you'll like maybe get close to it in a session um and then you'll come back and chances are maybe that's a bad example because recruitment makes a big difference as well but like the movement will feel much more natural it's it's totally true like you know when between a couple of sessions you're not getting stronger and if you trained well you're not really going to recruit much more you might recruit a little bit of intramuscular coordination but that effectively is muscle memory that intram that your your muscles are learning to fire all at the right time like yeah for, for me someone going um someone wants to get stronger I can almost guarantee in the first couple of weeks of training with me, they'll probably feel stronger because it's their neurological system learning to move in the way that I've, you know, the trainings asked them to do it, which is often novel. So you get quick gains and that's when people see a spike and instead of like continuing with it and dealing with the physical adaptations that are much slower to get, they go, oh, it stopped working. I'll try something else. And you kind of do this wave all the time. But like that, that muscle memory is, is coordination, it is learning. It's the body going, this is something that needs to be done. Let's figure out how to do it. And that's often not conscious or it can be a little bit, but. I think it comes back a little bit to what you're saying about how much we can understand climbing. And I think it's um, like climbing training and like standardizing it. And I think kind of alludes to how vast that would be as a topic, but I find it really interesting, you know, tap into something like that where it feels like there's a lot of potential yeah that that's like um it's kind of like one of my biggest like value like values in climbing is is play and like playfulness um and by that i kind of mean that that movement and learning and there's a really good uh saying by like this author called seth godin um which was it so it's effectively um what would you do if you knew you were going to fail anyway so like, say, for instance, if you had multiple projects, if you knew you're going to fail on all of them, what would you actually do about like, what would you do? Would you still go? Would you still turn up? And say for like, say with your example right now, you're on burden. The amount of learning that's going on in on holds and movement styles and all that kind of creation, irregardless of whether the trips are success you're learning on there you're treated like your body is adapting and it's it's creating all these new movement patterns and i find that like so rewarding and fascinating and it's kind of going into the sessions with the intent that that's what i'm trying to achieve the 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 whole point of me being here is for my conscious and unconscious mind to adapt to this stimulus and play with it learn these new movements learn how to deal with these conditions learn everything about it and then if you top it that's great as well and i'm not saying it like success is never obviously is is satisfying it's it's amazing to do but i think if you can go in with that mindset it, it creates so much more pleasure out of a lot of your climbing experiences 
it carries over really well for for Aiden and outdoor climbers. But does that carry over quite as well for your comp climbers, where it's like you you have to do it to win? <laughs> like, is it, it, it is it is this more, more like so. a training? Oh, it's more of a training thing, or like even in the comps? I think even more so for comp climbers because their movement requirements are so much more vast. That is, lit- that, I mean, most of comp climbing, in my opinion, like slab wise, is is play to learn to learn movement patterns and the execution in the comp does require a lot of control but a good example of you know the obvious people that are amazing the japanese team they spent so long playing on boulders like just in groups working stuff out messing around in the competition like you've got some of the japanese team like shouting up like banter at serato like in the final <laughs> like laughing at him when he's falling off badly and if you can just t- like they're taking that mindset forward and it's not that they don't ever feel pressure and you can see it's changed tomorrow a little bit with sort of the years and, and potentially more pressure and expectation on him. But, you know, if you can take that play mindset, you're going into something and it all it is is a new game, right? You're going in and going, sweet, I've got to try and do this as fast as possible. It's exactly the same learning experience, but I've got a time limit on it. I mean, we had, we went from December, January, uh, the training period, there was there was one slab move. So I'd, I'd set loads of slab splatters, splat boards and just keep tweaking them, keep tweak, tweaking them each week. So you'd make a, a movement up. Someone would do a, a jump this way, jump that way and create a problem. And it would make it slightly harder. And you try and replicate that the next week and then would make something else up. And I remember one particular day, uh, myself, Toby and Aaron McNeese um, spent two and a half hours on this foot swap on this one volume and it was it went so fast now I, I was actually a little bit embarrassed because i'm supposed to be like coaching these people that we spent so long on this one foot swap but erin did it at the end and she was so psyched and toby was just trying to do these new modifications of that same movement pattern so you can go from doing it in two and a half hours and then in january february you might try and do it all these hard problems quicker and by the time you hit in april okay here's four minutes but the, the process is the same. You're just changing the parameters of the game. It's, I'm just seeing uh, something that's linking these anecdotes, though, is quite often that there's, and this has been sort of suggested as one of the big secrets of the Japanese team as well, is that there's a lot of camaraderie and there's a lot of people there to help bounce ideas off each other. And it's much easier to get into that playful mindset when you've got other people to bounce off, isn't it? If it's just you by yourself doing footstops on a volume for two and a half hours, I can't imagine you like being able to find that same space. Do you think training partners is really important? I I personally think so, yeah. I think coming back to one of your other points, what to say Aiden and Toby have in similarity, I think both you guys can do that on your own. Like, I mean, the amount of time you spend on your own, on your board, Aiden, is like, and working through stuff is like phenomenal. But we're still Hello, mate, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just no, no one around. There's no friends. <laughs> but, yeah. um, but you're like, you're constantly sending me videos, and we're like chatting through stuff, and we have camaraderie in that way. Even though. Um, where I remember in the first lockdown, I tried to create a little board group between <laughs> us two and a few athletes where everyone would send pictures of their board, their favorite problems and try and create that site. But for me, tra- skin. 
terrible <laughs> skin. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'd crop up a lot. <laughs> and training partners, I think, is, is huge. Like for for a community because and having that community there because one, you know, I've not seen someone not try harder when they're in a, the right group and the right environment. Two, you get called out for all your bullshit. You know, people that turn up and they're going, oh, this looks really hard, blah, blah, blah. And you're like, shut up. We know you, you'll be able to do this, but you've got to try and do it a couple of times. Like, don't just send it, push yourself. And then three, you, you just bounce ideas around. So try and do that with your foot on. Can you do that slower? Why don't you try it this way? And it just takes away some of the effort that goes into those sessions and creates more uh, more creativity, I think. So yeah, I'm I'm 100% behind it. If if you want to get better, create a training camp and a scene. That's why, this, I mean, personally, that's the only reason why the schoolroom is special in my eyes is the fact that a community has all gone there over years. You might not be there at the same time as other people, but you're using a board that's got history and history is community. Like history on its own doesn't mean anything, but that's why like history about people is more interesting than history about the land because you know you're relating to what's happened and i think the schoolroom has that with that 50 degree board mm. no totally i was on it today love it oh <laughs> nice <laughs> yeah i think we're all uh all schoolroom advocates <laughs> how did uh how did leo get on today was he was he down there i didn't know i didn't see him down there today um but i was with ben and i love watching i love watching ben still smashing out hard problems on the school board he's, <laughs> he's flipping strong isn't he yeah yeah still is yeah <laughs> he's he's phenomenal climber very very fast twitch <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> powerful yeah no um i think uh it's a good point as well that camaraderie i think it helps a lot in comps and outdoors alike but i feel like it's just in different points of the process i don't find preparing for like training for hard projects i don't find it's too limiting to be like training on the board by myself um without other people there because like maybe sharing sharing ideas about the nuances of how to do moves on a board is uh less crucial say to like it, there's much more emphasis on the physicalities of it um and kind of i guess there's a muscular coordination but like say if i'm like not i don't know standing on a specific part of a foothold while i'm like training on the board and I'm just trying a certain like a certain angle of it. I'm still getting the physical stimulus and like the muscular coordination to use that doing the board problems matters to me, but like generally, like it's not that important. Uh, what? <laughs> yes, <yeah>, sorry. <laughs> um, whereas, like when you then actually get to the rocks and like you are in your performance phase, having that camaraderie and like sharing ideas, uh, like you were saying earlier, they don't necessarily have to be a better climber than you to like give you valuable advice. I notice that loads when I'm projecting on hard things. When I climbed Alfane, me and Will on that trip, and uh, we could like accelerate each other's process because we'd be like, "Oh yeah, try this, try that. This might work for you, and that might work for you." And like, yeah, you end up like contributing to each other's process anyway. Comp climbing, obviously, when you're on the mat, you're there by yourself. Kind of almost that isn't really relevant. Like you don't. You don't generally have your teammates shouting the beer to you. I mean, eh, there's cases of that happening, but I think generally, generally not, it's not, not, not in English, does it? <laughs> not in English, yeah, not in English. You can't. <laughs> no, that camaraderie is really important on the other side of things when you are training and experimenting with those ideas. I feel like it is really relevant for everyone, but maybe has importance in different places. 
yeah yeah you're totally right it's kind of it's like everything and i i take i don't want to use the word like periodizing it but like you know all experiences have their place at some point in your in your climbing but it's like those moments on your own like one of the best times i've had out climbing this year was uh doing like bouldering at the tour and for some reason i had it to myself till 11 30 and then on a beautiful day in the morning and had to use the cushions out of my car or my van to pad out the things so i was expecting other people to be there and <laughs> yeah i was um, gonna say that's rare isn't it to it have the shade in the morning and then come uh, yeah yeah it was it was perfect day yeah. like a message to mate after being like sitting there with a cup of tea because this is what he always really enjoyed but you know i could have been there the week earlier with a group of people and like you said with the beta thing it's like we went to badger cove this i think this summer or this spring and i remember yeah. watching you on um the project you were trying and being like oh when you when you try this heel hook and obviously while she's pulling on i'm going oh please don't hurt something when she's trying my beater and as soon as you come down you're like that's quite good i'm like yeah i thought it would be <laughs> yeah phew phew thank god um <laughs> but i like that like i mean you were you were helping me um i mean you were having to put in a heavy effort power spotting me on some of the climbs <laughs> but um you know that kind of bounce back and forward is is great and I think that is one of the things when you are open to receiving advice as well, it kind of just uh, cultivates that like open-mindedness. I feel like open-mindedness as a trait is quite helpful anyway, and you don't necessarily need external input to be quite creative with how you try things. But I think it helps to like have someone else suggesting things and you having that as like an open discussion kind of just like, yeah, cultivates that mindset of being quite open to new ideas, even if they are your own ideas, kind of makes it a bit more creative. It's been an interesting experience doing going through the same process with my um my wife Maddie because we've climbed with each other since you know we started going out uh many years ago and um I remember being like you should try this and she's like no you didn't I'm t- I'm too short and I'm not strong enough to do that movement and I'm like maybe maybe you could try it and then I built up enough times when I was right where I go come on you know just give it a go um <laughs> And I still get the evil look if it doesn't work out. <laughs> but <laughs> but we, now I have that obligation if she suggests something that I immediately have to try it her way as well. But um, <laughs> I think I think you get a, a good balance with good climbing partners, don't you? Yeah, I yeah. think it, it is a really big advantage, that ability, though, to especially when the person who's giving the advice climbs many grades below you, still being able to take it seriously and think about it because those people still have eyes they're still like they're still climbers and a lot of them still really understand movement Aiden's really good at it I've seen Aiden always considers what people say to him you know I guess sometimes it's not welcome but you never make it look like it wasn't welcome um but I remember once I always like it I always like (laughs) well you never know do you because sometimes people don't really want advice but they're just like nodding along being like yeah Cheers, cheers. Yeah. Um, but like, I, I remember it happened with uh, with my wife once when we were climbing outside and she offered a piece of advice to a friend of hers um, who climbed quite a few grades harder. And I remember he sort of snapped at her being like, well, why don't you climb it then? And I remember thinking like, now I'm going to watch you not try this perfectly reasonable piece of beta just out of spite. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you're like, that's, yeah, it's so narrow-minded, isn't it? And yeah. Like you say, there's so many things that people miss. Um, I'm going to totally throw Alex Barrows under the bus here, uh, who is a good mate of mine. So, um, 
he's the most tactical person I've ever met with climbing. I think, you know, I, I aspire to have the tactics that he does. I, I have so much respect for his climbing. And he was doing the, he did a 9A at the tour recently, uh, where it comes all the way back from belly of the beast and out and to the top of the crag, which is obviously the, the king line that people will travel here for. But he, he was coming out. <laughs> that and might be like, up that street. Was- that was actually my climb. That, <laughs> that, was, that was actually Bellyful of Nachos, which was my Bellyful of Nachos, sorry, sorry. Uh, <laughs> so yes, it was at my street, Aiden. I did it first. <laughs> oh, wait, that was your climb. That was that my was climb. Your... Wait, and... Are you, you going to go for the, uh, the upside down knee bar and... Oh, no, and... <laughs> no. He, he managed to find a knee bar rest through my problem, which was designed to take out the knee bar rest. We um, actually spoke about this on the podcast in the show, yeah. I think. I only... <laughs> but I will say on, on podcast, he massively undervalues how good he is at knee bars. Oh, he, yeah. He thinks he's... if he can put a knee bar in, it must be easier. But no one else can do that knee bar that he's doing. And he's got big shins. There's that, got... a man with long shins. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's all that. It's yeah. all the long shins. Forget, forget all the nice thing I said. Yeah, it's all about the shin then. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, that is a, a thing. Underappreciating it is a skill. Oh, yeah. He's, he's so good at it. I mean, that's the same thing like I was saying about like his, his, his tactics. He's so good at being tactical. And I remember watching him trying it. And he was like, I don't know whether to... He got into a rest before going into the the final section where um uh you know when it gets to the hardest section of the boulder and he, and he was like oh i don't know what to do like if i put my chalk bag on before it drags along the floor if i uh leave it there and put it on it's a bit of an effort and i was like oh why don't you just put your chalk bag on the side of your body and he's like fucking hell i've never even thought of doing that before and i was just like <laughs> what are you on about like i was like where, where's where's your fan and he was like oh i've not got a fan and i was like but you keep falling off this it's greasy and you know these like people just sometimes they get into a rhythm and they don't think about these things and he's yeah. the, literally the person i aspire to be like in terms of tactics um and knee bars so yeah, yeah where's sorry, your Alex. where's your leaf below on each hold <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Hey, I've got one of those now and I quite like it. You've got a leaf blower. <laughs> and I and I use it on my board. <laughs> no. <laughs> it makes Wait. a massive difference. Wait, what? Just to dry, like cool the hold? Just or? cool one hold, yeah. Cool the crux hold with a blower for like 15 seconds, then pull on. Then did talk you, to uh, me. <laughs> did you start a new hashtag? You know, everyone got into brush the holds on the board. You could do blow the holds and just leaf blower. Yeah. Every- everyone go down to every climbing gym in the world with two leaf blowers blasted. <laughs> oh, God, I reckon, uh, yeah, it might make, make you popular with the neighbours, I guess. <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't actually used it on rock yet, but on my board. It works well. Ah, there you go, some product testing. Yeah, no, tactics. There we go. I might have to go for uh, to the toilet, guys. So I'll, I'll oh, yeah, pop yeah. out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Actually, I might um, try and also go for a while. <laughs> I could tell that was going to happen by the way you were drinking that water, Ollie. <laughs> <I know. laughs> We've been doing enough of these podcasts to know if how much someone's drinking if you're going to get the whole way through. I, I already uh, I pre warned Aiden about my uh, my tiny bladder. So I was like, <laughs> I'm going to have to stop. It was, but I did when I did the uh, Nugget podcast, and I was like, 
kind of get desperate for Lou and I kept trying to put my hand up then I typed on the chat and I was like I'm gonna to have to stop for a pee but he just kind of kept going like in a really good rhythm and I was just like <laughs> oh <laughs> yeah you see that's a problem when you're too good at interviewing <laughs> you see we just had disjointed conversations and random tangents it's just you can just leave yeah. if you want to me and Sam keep banging on about something <laughs> that's the that's the charm the charm yeah, yeah that's what we keep dining out on yeah <laughs> eventually that's gonna run out i think <laughs> okay i thought a good time seen as a bit of a conversation reset there was yeah, a general topic that I thought would be good to cover because I wanted to hear a bit of your opinions on how much climbers can learn from other sports. And I thought this was quite a helpful topic because I know you mentioned a little bit yourself that you like had a lot of foundations in uh, coaching and other sports like strength and conditioning. And, and generally I feel like, uh, and just like personal experience doing other forms of training without climbing in mind. Uh, I thought it was quite interesting. We like we had like Keenan Takashi on the pod, and um, he actually spoke about um, skateboarding and how that applies to climbing. And I guess that's much more like a movement pattern kind of based thing. Obviously, there's a lot of sports which there is crossover, um, and like I thought it'd be interesting to dive into that. So I guess maybe we could like talk a little bit about the sports that you've had experience in, um, and maybe like how you feel they apply. Things like gymnastics must apply really well to climbing, but there doesn't feel like an awful lot of conversation about that crossover. Yeah, it's um so I guess from my personal experience in terms of sport, so gym, background in gymnastics to sort of mid-teens. And then I was really lucky with I did sort of swimming and then skateboarding and going to snowboarding um and I used to bike loads and so I pretty much I've always tried to do every possible sport that I can do. I've just been psyched on it. Um, and in a university, because I lived with a load of athletes in different sports, I trained sort of footballers, uh, downhill bikers, road cyclists, um, climbers, divers. Um, and it was like, it's one of those, it was like a really casual thing, but you learned a lot. But in terms of to answer your question, I guess the way I always view this now is all of them, all um, translating any information from another sport is going to have a negative side. There'll always be like elements. If you if you took this athlete, got them to climb, they're going to have some kind of limitation on it. Gymnastics, I've kind of I think I've said previously is the there's so many benefits to it. The obvious disadvantages are one muscle mass versus finger strength is probably not great. Um, so it takes time to build up that finger strength. And two is you, gymnastics is about control of movement. In my opinion, climbing is about um, controlling the right parts of that movement. And you see really good climbers that have pretty poised um, faces. They're relaxing the right parts of their body so they can flick. They're controlling the right parts of their body. If they're ice, like, if you're isolating on a crimp, that part of your body is isolated, but the rest of your body, the leg that's, you know, hanging off the wall isn't pointed really straight. And I think gymnasts really struggle to switch that off. Um, I know it's something I really struggled with. You just, as soon as you do a movement, you tense everything all at once and it's really inefficient. But 
if I was, when I try and do this the other way, okay, what in climbing do I want to get better at? What sport is kind of applicable? And say like Keenan's example, and I've actually got, because I skateboarded a lot, and one of the coaches um, from Lattice was a was a pro skateboarder. He is amazing at comp slab moves. You go, so what's good for what's skateboarding good for? It's good for foot coordination and balance. I want to get better at slabby coordination moves. What sports like that? And what do they do in their training? Or what do they do in practice, like day in, day out? Like to skateboarders, they practice tricks all the time. They just like they uh, learn them, learn them, learn them, and then they uh, apply them to the hard situations. Um if you look at uh people that are doing alpine skiing, so I've got a friend who's an elite downhill skier and now she translated to climbing what she's really good at is fully switching on full commitment doesn't look around everything so you know she forgets everything else and she just fully commits in the danger zone of, of trad climbing and that's like okay skiing is clearly that because you drop in and you kind of screwed if you if you worry about anything else it's all about like getting in the zone so i always think about like What's the thing I want to get better at in climbing? What kind of sport relates to that, even in a nuanced way? And what do they do day in, day out? And that's how you can kind of translate all this information. Mm, does that yeah. make sense? I'm not sure that makes No, no, it does totally. Yeah. yeah, yeah, no, it definitely feels quite relevant. It makes sense when you take it, bring it into account, like obviously the physical side and the psychological side and how that relates as well. But then obviously with lattice and like the training, they prescribe um, kind of almost like the physical stimulus um, of lots of the training as well. Um, most of like the research behind strength training, I guess, has foundations in other sports, powerlifting and uh, but like obviously different bits applied. So I kind of feel like with powerlifting, it could be like really relatable to like climbing powerfully on a board or something. Cause you like have to, the rate of force is really important and you could maybe draw inspiration from that. But then for example, we talk about the importance of finger strength in like strength to weight ratio and training your fingers, the like stimulus for like getting stronger fingers is obviously different to that of becoming more powerful and that we're like entirely isometric. So maybe you can then look at like a gymnast holding an iron cross and like what physical stimulus like improves. Yeah. Uh, it is like the same thing of like, what do I want to improve? And you draw inspiration from other sports um, or like places where there are more research to apply yeah. to that very niche physical uh, stimulus. That, that's the thing It's try not to take things and apply it to the whole, take the bits you need and apply it to the bit. So a really good example that we do is um, we have a, uh, a coach come in. So one of the external uh, sort of educators we have for our team, because we're not experts in all areas, but we are trying to be experts in our area. And one of the coaches who comes in, he works for a Tour de France cycling team. Um, and he used to be working in UK university. He specializes in endurance training and building up capacities. So we've talked a lot about sort of critical force, but he'll come in and he presents the latest research to our team on what's happening in the cycling world. And then he helps us like in a discussion and through his own, like we, like we ask him to sort of help translate this to climbing and then we apply all these models to climbing and then we go, what does this look like and how do we do it? And what's the best way to do it? 
and then we debate is that actually even possible so for like the recent one we did uh with him is talking about this huge level of of low aerobic work um to build up endurance and capillarization and um changes in mitochondrial density in your in your arms that's like now known in cycling or very highly known or it's, it's a lot more research because they can take muscle biopsies from the the quad muscle um they can analyze it's a bigger muscle mass they can see the cardiovascular differences and separate those we've not got that because you don't want to take a muscle biopsy before um also we have zero budget so <laughs> let's figure out like what can we take from that and what can we apply so we start talking about okay maybe we can start doing this easy fingerboarding day in day out just loads and loads of volume because you can't go and climb you know for ridiculous hours like cyclists do every day at low intensity well you you probably could but no one would um but you could do it um you know on something really easy and a great example of this is uh i've been chatting to dave mason quite a lot He's, uh, i used to coach him for a long time and he's a really good friend of mine we're chatting about kind of making the most of time when you're a passenger in the car or something. And just, he's got this little squeezer that just goes eh, 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 for like an hour. You told me about uh, this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we were chatting about that loads and he started doing it throughout fun. And I was like, this is something that um, Johnny did when he was going down to try his projects down South. Um, and Dave's come back feeling fitter. So it's kind of like, how can you get, the theory of this cycling where they do miles and miles and miles in a base season at really low intensity into climbing and then how can you get it into real world climbing where we're not all full-time athletes or we have limited time with skin and trying to balance other things that's kind of the fun bit i think so you translate yeah if i take something which is a whole of another sport and you apply it to the part of our sport and then you try and fit it into your lifestyle as well um and that's something i've always found like totally fascinating and trying to steal stuff from like i mean I and mean, there must be so many climbs out there that have thought about trying to drop weight quickly and look to what jockeys do and you're like that's it's definitely what, yeah it's a, it's a terrible jo- idea what do jockeys do is it is it like a boxing sweat it out with the sweatsuits have you seen them god they are but if you actually look what jockeys do they you know they can have up to 500 races a year you know they are racing almost all week so they're trying to maintain that weight all week so they're having hot baths all week so loads of them are infertile um because they've heated up the testicles so much and they're, they're okay this is this is probably pretty old school in terms of what's actually going on these days but they are trying to be light a lot and that was the sort of thing where you're like okay that's too extreme we won't bring that part into climbing but, <laughs> okay. uh, and i said hmm interesting yeah, how hot yeah, are yeah. these baths exactly. <laughs> can we remove the testicles altogether at this point yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably not going to make a big enough difference in your weight though is it like <laughs> oh well speak for yourself mate. yeah <laughs> libel that's libel <laughs> bar to <be> feeling. <laughs> yeah. oh, the pee- PG pod, the PG pod. <laughs> pod. Yeah, I think I think those things I just think are really interesting. Like you can take anything from any sport and see if it applies. Um, <laughs> and it's like you, you do the same with business and like you know mindsets. Like we were talking about this study in Stanford. That's like a neuroscience study, and we ended up chatting about it for an entire winter. 
<laughs> in context of uh, yeah, board problems. So was, was, <laughs> was there anything you learned from the jockeys at all? Or, or just... uh, how hot were the baths? Playing <laughs> <laughs> riding this down, mate. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> Is there anything I learned from the jockeys? To be honest, no, I would say that it was the stuff that I used to look at. And this was because I looked into that a very long time ago, I must admit. But that was, it was so close to the 90s dieting vibes and climbing. Mm. It was already, already too close to the bone. So I think, um, unfortunately, uh, yeah, I, did, I didn't take anything from it. I was, I was fascinated. I, I learned a lot about their mentality, though. Like, I don't know if you've ever read, um, is it Rory, Rory McIlroy? No. That McCoy. Golfer. Yeah. Not the golfer. Um, can't remember his name now, but... Is this yeah, a famous he, jockey? Famous jockey. Um, I will not have read it. <laughs> no, no. But, but, so, like, you look at them and they used to, like, they've broken almost every bone in their body. And he was describing at a certain point being like, oh, I was just, you know, looking forward to getting run over by all the other horses. I could feel myself falling off and I was just, like, falling into bliss. And you're just like, whoa, that is like a the weird mindset i i find that fascinating wow so, someone okay. is so extreme that they are you know they're institutionalized again trampled by a couple of yeah. tons worth of horse <laughs> sounds like a slightly dangerous mindset that <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah i mean we do suffer quite a lot if it has climbers to be fair True, we do, yeah. we do. that, pad, that when... pad was only seven inches thick it wasn't <laughs> yeah yeah when you're like grimacing as you like engage a full crimp with like three split tips and you're just like "Ah, (laughs) but But, um, it's it's funny what you were just saying there about the kind of like 90s starvation system because i actually just briefly had a chat with ben moon today and and i was sort of asking him like is there any would you prefer to have been born in a different era? You know, be, how do you think it would be to be a climber now? And he was saying, well, you know, I don't think I'd have necessarily been good enough, which you think, yeah, but I think you would have been better because if you think about what you were doing in the nineties, you were dossing in a cave, eating the occasional bread roll and then starving yourself. So it's like, yeah. I think the training has also moved on, which I think is quite, it's like that, the other that- side of it. That's Ben all over there, isn't it? He's so humble. Yeah. It, it's, yeah, yeah. I, I, always, I do wonder that with, um, you know, certain people that you see, old athletes, would they have done better? Or, you know, like some say like the 90s climbers, they were able to keep, if I was pushing the next grade, you'd have so much um, momentum. And then the next grade for them didn't seem to go down pretty quickly. And they just created this huge momentum between them. But now it's like taking quite a long time to go up a little bit, quite a long time to go up a bit. Same with like, say, sprinting. It's like some person like you saying Bolt might take a step forward, but takes so much longer for the next person to come in. But sprinting 50 years ago, did it keep stepping forward? Or when they started, did it go faster and faster? And there was momentum behind that? I don't know. I mean, yeah. I, I could imagine it being such an exciting time to be part of being like, you know, someone else has just done something new. I'm going to push even harder. Yeah. Um, yeah. You definitely see that a lot uh, in climbing in all areas and you see it in all like 
disciplined as well. We we were talking just earlier about like the Japanese team, and it's not by coincidence that just a load of physically talented people have all like cropped up at the same time. There's definitely a lot of that um, level being like pushed quite collectively as well, um, and you kind of see it outside and everywhere, don't you? Yeah, I think um, actually probably the next big movement forward, and this is kind of limited by the rock, is is going to be the trad world. Because, like, you imagine how stagnated trad climbing had been, really, um, partly because of, you know, ethics and history and the weight of history and so on, particularly in the UK. And then a few people have, you know, pushed it harder and harder. And, like, say, like, James and Pete climbing, like, pretty much 9A. I don't know whether it's been confirmed or whatever yet. Or James is, thinks it's 9A or whatever, but it's climbing 9a trad and then yukopo with tribe and you know these guys are ready to do 9a again 9a plus trad it's just finding the right rock and then you imagine yeah you know, you've got a whole generation of comp climbers they're about to mm. go out and unleash i mean jim alone's gonna push the the trad world to the next <laughs> level i'm sure yeah, um, yeah yeah the strongest climbers in the world haven't been trad climbing but they might start to yeah and if we can find the right right rock Mm. that is the there is a huge avenue for progression there Mm. however saying that uh upon toby's olympic qualification jim's qualified for oqs so he might be in for another year of comps i know i did uh i did (laughs) i had a chat with him so i'm actually going to well potentially we're going to kyrgyzstan with him next summer Oh yeah, actually, I kind of haven't made that link in my head because <laughs> he was doing a, another year of comps and also going to Kyrgyzstan <laughs> for training. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, actually, it was, I'm sure Jim won't mind me saying this, but we're because uh, obviously um, he didn't know at this point when we we're in the pub and we we're chatting about. Uh, he thought he wasn't probably going to get to AQS, and we we're talking about Kyrgyzstan. And then he was sort of talking about getting back for the comp season, and I think everyone just looked at him and their jaws dropped. And then we all started laughing. So we're like, flipping hell, mate, you're going to be away with us for six weeks doing big walling and massive walkings and going to the lead <laughs> season. It's going to be desperate. <laughs> but but Jim's going to be able to pull it off. That's the thing. He's so good. Is Yay. OQS Olympic qualifying or something? Along, Olympic uh, yeah, qualifying Olympic qualifying. Right, okay. It's like right. three, three events? Uh, it's now only two events. So May and June. But... Lucky for Jim, you um we're not actually having to book a lot of our stuff uh, until a month before we leave for Kyrgyzstan. So if he does really well, uh he can go to the Olympics. And if he doesn't, his consolidation trip is with us lot <laughs> going to the going to the middle of the Middle East. So first ascent of mountains. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> either way, he'll be chom- he'll be chomping at the bit either way. So it'll be fine. Yeah, 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 yeah. That is the thing. If you enjoy it all disciplines then it's no hardship when you end up with either of them or any of them <laughs> there's exactly. more than those two <laughs> but um uh, i wanted to follow up on it before we moved on quickly was the stuff you were talking about about like um you had a cyclist cycling specialist in about like a lot of strength capacity um and how that can uh, be valuable as a climber and i think a very non-obvious link I know um, you've explained this quite well to me in the past with the diagram with the tank 
and stuff. Just the idea of, because before I was like properly explained that and partly when I was like stuck in my ways slightly as like a low volume, high intensity climber, um, basically any mention of volume work, endurance, capacity work, I was like, oh nice, yeah, the comp climbers can do that. I'm just going to stick to the hard moves. Basically anything other than just max power as a boulderer. Uh, <laughs> you're laughing, Sam, because <laughs> you, just, you just do short board problems. <laughs> no, that's actually not true. You do uh, you do long uh, limestone uh, nine eights. I've heard. <laughs> <laughs> I do limestone limestone link up sometimes. Yeah, but training is just short board problems. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where where does this anything but a power as a boulder? Like, how does it fit into the bigger picture? Um. Yeah, the, the, the main thing with trying to develop those sort of capacities is I haven't explained the tank analogy in a little while, but so I'll I'll, I'll try my best to say it succinctly. If you imagine you've got your energy tank and you've got a tap at the bottom of it, your tap is your power, your max strength. So you open the tap, you drain the tank. The bigger your tap, the bigger the power is, bigger the max strength. But the bigger the the tank above it, it's kind of the bigger reservoir of water that can like flow out of that tap really quickly, the bigger the pressure uh, and the longer it will go out for as well. Now, the inflow to the tank is like your aerobic system. The tank itself is your anaerobic system and the tap is your max strength and power, so your output. So if you imagine throughout a session, if you keep opening the tap up and you're letting a load of water out, you're putting in some max efforts, the bigger the tank, the longer your session is going to be, and probably the bigger effort, the more that's going to come out of that tap. So the bigger efforts you're going to be able to put in each go. The bigger your input flow, the quickly, the quicker that's going, that tank's going to refill or going to keep filling up between those attempts. So your session is going to be longer and it's going to be higher quality because it's going to have more pressure on each of those attempts. You're going to have more in the tank every time. So for me, the climber who only does never does any sort of endurance work or power endurance work or volume. It's always building that tap to get bigger and bigger and bigger. But because the tank and the inflow is never changing, all they're doing is being able to release all that water quicker at a higher level. And it's going to mean that they're never kind of working on those ability to last for longer throughout a session. Um, and they're never working on the ability to link more movements on a longer boulder problem. So it's kind of trying to decide what you want to do. So if you are the climber who only wants to climb, you know, a three move max effort thing, you can do that 100%. Your training is going to have to be far more spaced apart. Your sessions are going to have to be far more succinct and you're going to have shorter sessions um, and you're going to have to focus on sort of not, you know, having to maximize stuff like your, your body mass and, your max strength rather than your ability to try the moves more. But if you work on that endurance as well, and you work on the the tank, you work on the power endurance, the anaerobic system, you'll be able to train more frequently. So you'll be able to do more max strength training than you could otherwise. So you'll be able to put more time on the board, the fingerboard. You'll be able to recover better between those sessions. So those sessions will be higher quality. And then on the sessions themselves, you'll be able to recover quicker. And then also, if all of a sudden you change to a 12-move problem, you will actually be able to try and do it other than blowing up at move three. Does that uh, 
Was that uh, clear enough? I'm, I'm, I've not said that in a while. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, I always found, I was always found that um, quite useful visual sport, uh, visual kind of structure because uh, I think I was slow to be a convert. I think it's fair to say. <laughs> but, but, um, and I also think a big part of that is we kind of spoke, or we kind of spoke about it mentioned it briefly when we're talking about um confidence as a coach and like kind of working with new athletes and the concern that it might necessarily get weaker um i feel like this is a big part of like training and it's part of the reason i think i've always found having a coach quite helpful is like a bit of an outside perspective a bit of like a a little reminder to see the bigger picture i think it's fair to say it's almost it's very easy to almost be too zoomed into your own climbing. When you zoom out and see the bigger picture, see the whole the training as a whole, there can be like a a danger of trying to optimize each and every moment and and like that be a detriment to uh general progression. If you were looking at the week of a boulderer and like a week trip, you maybe would have a different attitude than if you were to look at a year or two as a climber and this is like this is where i feel like i mean there's lots of different it's quite a complex subject but i feel like uh training like treating training is quite interesting in this sense because for example like in this of working capacity and like building that up generally you have to be in quite a fatigued state or like you do just get tired and you might see like performance drop it can be quite hard actually to like look at it objectively and like zoom out and like see it as a bigger picture and be like, Oh, okay. I'm meant to be tired. Mm-hmm. Kind of nowhere to check in to nowhere is like what is working for you. I think it's fair to say it's sometimes hard to know when you're living it, whether it's just part of the process or you're doing something that doesn't work for you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, this kind of classic saying is that everyone overestimates what they can do in a week and underestimates what they can do in a year. And I think that's so applicable to climbers. And I think the thing we, we've talked about this quite a lot in the past, and this is something mm. I try and get all the coaches to think about is um, your job as a coach is to be the timekeeper. Because like you said, you live 24 hours or seven days a week. So it feels kind of slow when things aren't going right. But to my sense, when we message like, I mean, we message quite a lot, but if I message you on Monday and on, you know, the following Wednesday or something like that, to me, physiologically, you haven't changed. Um, You've got like, you've only done a couple more sessions. So this is still part of the process. Uh, This is hypothetical. I'm not saying this has happened yet. Um, But to you, if something, if something was like you're raging about skin or you have bad conditions or whatever, like it feels like forever, doesn't it? It feels like a long time. Or so it's like our job to kind of keep a realistic view on that time period, because it's so hard for anyone to do that. Um, to keep a realistic time period um, that's going on, particularly when they're having to deal with any sort of adversity or struggles, it's the external person's job to kind of keep track of: is this actually a realistic time scale? Don't worry, it's absolutely fine. Like during those, you know, like you said, if you're going into a training phase and you're feeling really bad, like I've had so many people in the past be like, I feel awful. Um, I've got worse. Like, I don't like this just doesn't seem to be working. You're like, this is week three. 
you've been trying really hard lately it's fine this is part of the process give it more time like it's literally another week be patient and then you see people get into a good rhythm of it but for them they've lived lived 21 days of putting in a massive effort and they're feeling really tired and you know it's hard to detach from that so whether it's a coach or just a mate is there I always think that's a really good thing to try and do like if you're on a project and I'm totally guilty of this like I said I'm trying to change back to having a bit more of a bolder mindset is if I've tried a project for like three sessions or something I'm already starting to think about the amount of sessions like say this is for like multi-pitch I've done recently and I'm like flipping out like oh it's been it feels like quite a lot of effort so far I would have thought I'd be further along oh, am I going to be able to do it is it worth trying am I enjoying this and you're like it's literally been three sessions like you say to someone like you say that now and I can imagine people at home going you're thinking that after three sessions what you're on about um but that's like just because I put in you know you, you, my time scale is totally warped um because I'm in every moment of it and that was all I was thinking about so I think if you can get someone to step in and keep track of these thoughts and give you a realistic time scale and kick you in the bum a little bit about it, it's it's really useful for being more productive and enjoying it more and giving yourself a bit of self-compassion. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's something that's quite grounding in like reality. I actually, I don't do this um, because I obviously work with a coach and have you kind of play that role in many ways, but I've always, I've, I was thinking about this um, uh, before this podcast and like trying to think of the perspective of someone who maybe doesn't have a coach or like kind of doesn't have like as regular contact with a coach. And I felt like actually that could be where like journaling your training or like keeping a log of your training could be quite helpful because it's something that is just concrete and unchanging and you can have almost like an objective view over it. You can maybe get to that point in week three where you're like, I'm t- why am I so tired? Maybe I'm weaker. And then you might look at back of your book and be like, oh, okay, maybe I am just tired. And maybe this is like, maybe I'm committing to like a six week block or something. And like, this is part of the process, but just anything to take it out of just yourself in the there and then, and like, see, see it, see the like phase as a whole, I think could be quite helpful. Yeah. So something I always think with journaling, I think loads of athletes do it, but I don't think people are always the best at actually going back and rereading. Like I always think just keep going back and rereading like what you've done and actually get, pre- like you say, get appreciation of what you've done. Um, Cause I think that's when you actually find out what's going on. And something that I always have done is um, I always make notes on things that stick in my head or behaviors or anecdotes or whatever. And if that pops up, uh, I, if something comes up, I'll put it in the back of the book and if it pops up a couple of times, I kind of make a note that that's something that seems to be consistent. And if at the end of the year or whatever, if that's an anecdote or behavior or something that seems to be, I'm still enjoying or being consistent, I take that forward to the next journal. And it's like, okay, this clearly is something that's working for me. Um, and on the point of sort of journaling, like a classic thing, and Sam, I imagine if you're into link-ups, this is something you, I don't know whether you think about it or not. <laughs> Um, have you had it rap already, Sam? Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah. (laughs) King of the link ups. Um, but say, say you're trying something that's you know quite hard or a bit longer or quite hard, um, to piece together, and say you're falling at the end or 
falling at a set point and at the first session you uh, you get there quite quickly sometimes don't you and you're like you got there once in a session it's kind of lucky but you feel like it might happen soon and all of a sudden there's a bit of expectation to try and do it Mm. but one thing we never a lot of people don't take appreciation for is if you record what happens in those sessions you might have hit that spot once in the first session say you're on an 8b and it's like a hard end sequence in theory you've probably climbed 8a 8a plus to get there um unless it's like a really standout move so you've done that in a session you've you've fallen off the end but four sessions time you're getting really annoyed at yourself because you're still falling off the same section it's getting really you're getting work like frustrated that this is happening but you've forgotten that you've actually done 12 8a 8a pluses in the session because you keep linking to that same spot so you clearly got better you've you're learning that movement pattern better you're probably a bit fitter because if you're able to get there so much faster you're, you're learning to move you've got muscle memory so you've learned a huge amount you've you are a better climber because you didn't get there 12 times in the first session yes it's it's learning movement pattern but why does that mean you're not a better climber you you're a better climber on this in this moment on this piece of rock so i think that's something i always try to have done is don't just look at tick or x look at Mm. how many of the sections did i do and what is that worth to me Uh, and for me often it's like cool actually if you drop the grade by a plus or uh you know like 880 plus from 8b personally i think if you can do that quite a few times and you're executing really well and you're able to climb so smoothly through that sequence that's pretty cool that probably means that you are ready to climb the 8b just just give it time now Mm. Um, but allowing a bit of appreciation for your own efforts goes a long way are you sort of aware because we 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 recently chatted to hazel findlay who obviously is like a mental <clears throat> coach for climbing but we said in that podcast that <laughs> obviously climbing isn't at a point yet where even a lot of the people at the top of the sport don't actually have mental coaches they've just got a coach normally not even always that but but they've mostly got a coach and actually, a lot of the stuff you've said in this discussion is actually really blurring the line between like strength and conditioning and actually mental coaching and sort of psychological coaching. Like, do you kind of, are you kind of aware that, you, that that's sort of part of your role? Because a lot of these people you work with might not have an actual mental coach to work with, or do you feel like you're, you're learning enough skills that you're kind of able to do that yourself? Um, I think it I guess I would always, in my role, consider myself a coach, which is trying to do as much as you can for the person as possible. And if you're in a team with coaches, like say Hazel's an expert in in her field, and I was, I mean, she's worked with Aiden as well. And, um, you know, if there's multiple minds going in there, all the better. But a lot of people are working with us. And I see that as like a massive responsibility. And I'm also massively interested in making the most of all the time people are putting in. So I think it is just completely blurred. Mm. Um, I think everyone that I work with is never just interested in physiology because it, it, it's really fascinating, but it's such a, it's one piece of the puzzle, isn't it? It's it's everything. And because we're all climbers ourselves and we're all trying to climb to the best standard with ourselves, we know that it's not just all physical. So it's about trying to do everything. That's why I'm not going to be the right per- coach for everyone because of 
I have certain personality traits. I communicate in a certain way. We might not click, so that's fine. Um, but someone else on the team might be, or maybe our system just doesn't work for people. Like we have a certain way of doing things that isn't going to work for everyone. Um, it's you've got to have that mental buy-in as well. I mean, I mean, most of the stuff you and me talk about, Aiden, is about sort of the process behind it, the behaviors talking about energy availability it's it's kind of everything because i think to be truly doing your best for someone you you've got to think about these things because like mm. if someone came to me if you're training a robot one i wouldn't do it i'd find it really boring uh, if i was just doing thinking about the physical but if someone came to us and they have they told me they have 10 hours a week and i've created a plan that was 10 hours worth of training that is completely naive because what I'm seeing actually in their descriptions is, oh, actually you've got a young child. You've also got a busy job. Okay. Where, where, oh, it's two hours drive to the wall. Okay. Realistically, you, we could push you so hard in those two out 10 hours, but you've got to try and maintain this life. And if one doesn't maintain, the other one doesn't. And fundamentally climbing is not that important anyway, is it? So Climbing is supposed to be a good fun bit. Let's make training fun. Let's make your experience around this fun and make it work for your lifestyle, which does play into psychology. It plays into behavior. Um, so, yeah, for me, it's completely blurred. There's never just black and white mm. whatsoever. And does that, as part of your sort of Swiss Army coaching, do you also do <laughs> technique coaching as well? Yes, in terms of, at the moment, less so with the athletes I work with um, because often there's, because I'm, I'm at the moment only working with higher level athletes, which I think can improve with technique, but it's far easier technique coaching where it's a discussion about movement patterns and they have the toolkits to go and learn themselves. Um, like when we've talked about say view aid and learning to be more powerful, we talk about what goes into that the intent behind it and the kind of movements to practice Aiden sends me videos of him on the board I say try and do this movement in this style that holds two in cut get off it um those, <laughs> those sorts of things <laughs> um those blue flat is your favorite um and then but if it's someone who's less experienced yeah because what I don't want to happen is um I train someone, get them way stronger. Their the headset seems really good, and they're not seeming to improve. There's clearly something going on. If I ignored that, they might be climbing terribly in terms of movement patterns. I'd, I'm not doing a good like I'm, I'm making my job worse by them getting frustrated with me that they're not climbing better. I'm like, okay, send us a video. Okay, actually, you look really tense on the wall. Let's think about dro like dropping the shoulders, flicking between holds. You know, it's just another part of the puzzle. It's much harder to do remotely for sure. Mm. But but I actually think um, learning to work around that is you, you can do it for sure. And it's just about knowing how to cue people. Um, you know, giving them the right the right uh, things to say in the head in the right moments. Because uh, we actually had a question from one of our patroons, um, and this might be an asking for a friend situation, but um, they were asking about if you have someone who's stronger 
than all of the metrics where you'd expect them to be at a grade how would you how would you train them if it sounds like it could be more of a technique issue or something you know if someone's all of their strength metrics appear to be like this person is stronger than the grade they're climbing like what how do you approach that um effectively we start with the goal like what are they trying to achieve are the metrics relevant to that goal and how relevant are they um and then say you keep breaking down those metrics to be uh, you get more more metrics to make it more relevant. So, for example, someone does 20 mil test, standard testing that's been around for ages. They come up really strong. Uh, they come on board. They want to plan. Um, and they want to climb something that's on really small edges um, and incur edges. Okay, let's, let's test the waters with small edges because physiologically it's different. The 20 mil edge will give you an insight, but okay, they're still really strong on small edges, like on a basic fingerboard test. Okay, um, let's get some feedback of them climbing on that style, whether it's on a board, um, whether they're sending us videos of that, what's their headset like around it? What's their process around projecting? Okay, it turns out they only go away for one week a year. Uh, outside climbing, they spend all their time on an indoor wall. They're training really hard, but the movement patterns aren't the same. Okay, let's try and make you more in line with that goal to make the most of it. And usually through discussion, you do find those things and anecdotal evidence with the person because there's so many circumstances where people will be work, working really hard, but because it's not related to their goal enough, um, they're kind of missing, they're missing that connecting piece of the puzzle. So the strength is worth keeping. But let's try and make it more applicable to the goal. And let's try and get you on something that's so applicable to that, that the strength translates. Um, easiest example for me on uh, translation of strength is people going from really using half crimp all the time, and then they want to do something open-holded or a pocket. Well, they they don't, they tend to have the strength there. If they're really strong fingers, they'll have the strength for a pocket climb. Like the tendons won't adapt a huge amount to it. Your forearms won't adapt a huge amount to that different style of training. It will over time. But what needs to happen is that that muscular coordination needs to change. So all you're doing is making it more specific to the goal. You're not actually changing the metrics or the strength. You're just changing your ability to use what you've already got. Mm. Um, because there's sometimes people have a... Uh the idea they get from a lot of the stuff that Lattice puts out um, is that Lattice has almost an obsession with metrics. And perhaps the, um, the feeling that they might get is that Lattice care a little bit too much about what numbers you're pulling on this edge. You know, how does that compare to what grade you should be climbing? Um, do you think that that that's fair do you think that is it sort of focuses a little bit too much just on the numbers because obviously as a training provider numbers is easier to scale you know you can try and help people to get higher numbers but do you think that to use aiden's favorite word it could get a bit sort of reductive oh i think i think it could we definitely don't but i can i know the i know the reputation i do i find it really hard actually when i hear the reputation um and I hear it all the time still. Um, and I even hear people saying about having um, 
template plans, which is even more infuriating. Uh, having seeing people's paychecks going to coaches that write trading plans every week, I know they're not templates. Um, but yeah, I think it's it's a reputation that's been brought out of us using that as our USP for sure. Like we were proud to have put so much time in, and having spent hundreds of hours personally sitting there testing people, I am proud of that data set. But like I said, if we were to make training plans purely from a data set and not read or listen to anything from the clients or from the customers, that is a completely reductive attitude towards training, which I personally would never uphold. It's about looking at the entire picture. And I think, say, the testing online for people, uh, we do the free testing. That is to provide their piece of the puzzle to help fast track them in the same process that we would do as a coach um, to help them understand just a piece of the puzzle for them so they can go, okay, maybe this isn't the thing. I don't need to spend more time on a fingerboard. I can see everyone on Instagram hanging the beast maker middle 2000. These guys have told me I'm already strong in that area. Cool. Let's focus on movement or let's get a movement coach. Uh, that might be a better use of time. hundred percent. So yeah, it's a reputation, I think, that's been built out of, um, it's kind of like the, the whole thing, isn't it? If you're reducing the spirit of climbing, I think that's like a, you know, a proper uh, evil act that you can do, particularly in the UK, particularly in Sheffield. Uh, if you're, you know, I had some while I was at a party the other day, um, chatting to someone and, and we were chatting about coaching, they were a coach as well. And they said, oh, I always consider you guys the evil empire. And I was just it's nice just, to hear, isn't it? I know, I know. Okay. And I was just like, she was really, she said, Oh, you changed my mind, sort of thing. And I was just like, I mean, your friend, you know, she you're friends with everyone that I'm friends with and work with. Like we are literally just a bunch of climbers that are kind of grown in size, but we still go to we're in some shitty <laughs> climbing wall in Chesterfield, sitting there together. Uh, everyone's going out to the limestone together. We're talking about training together like we are here in this podcast. Um, and that data element is just something that we've created because it helps us do our job a little bit better. Um, but nothing's changed. Like we are literally just a bunch of climbers again. And I do think that the kind of the corporate view that we have and that kind of killing the spirit, I think it's just unfortunately um a bit of a result of you know having social media out there looking like we're expanding looking like we're a massive team um i mean i have people for years asking me to be in touch with our marketing team um and i was like what do you mean it's literally just tom who just really likes instagram um and i think that's something that often gets missed so yeah in terms of the in terms of uh the data it would be reductive but um, i'm glad to say it's not happening um i think you get like little waves of, of this happening um and i probably from my perspective one thing that's always interesting is like i said before i don't like social media personally i'm i've got a pretty addictive personality i i can't go on it i i don't really like how it works for a lot of people um and sometimes i will question sort of the guys on the team about sort of what we're doing but I've not been to 
a crag around the world in the last few years where someone's not come up and said, oh, I'm so psyched for all the content you're putting out. Like, thanks for the YouTube, all of this. Because I think, say, like it for people like, say, in Sheffield, for example, we have a community to bounce off each other. But there's so many climbers out there that their family and their friends don't necessarily climb. And they are using social media in the way that it was designed for to be part of this community. And they feel, you know, they feel connected to you in whatever way and they're getting motivation from it and i absolutely love that like it's so good to see and i'm i'm really proud of the team the marketing team and and josh on youtube and stuff for for doing that for people because they genuinely really really appreciate it i've just run a couple of focus groups this week for our app to talk to climbers about what they want us to do if we create like creating an app for everyone and people are so psyched and they were just you know, really, really keen to be involved in it. They watch, you know, the content, they want to learn more. And I was just blown away by how psyched everyone is. And I'm like, if we can help people in that way, like social media is a good thing. I'll keep my mouth shut. Um, <laughs> and I trust that I trust our team to do an amazing job. Yeah. And in many ways, uh, at the end of the day, it's hard to complain about access to large volume of training-based advice for free if you're offended by it you just don't watch it <laughs> i know that, that's the thing isn't it if, you, if, you, if you're not into it then that's fine we're not like people aren't for everyone i mean you're not gonna like everyone's style but i mean you you, you kind of know what the scene's like don't you aiden when you've come down and trained it's like it feels like an old school 90s wall with a dodgy kitchen a couple of tables and some really chalky holes because no one brushes them. Yeah. No, well, that, that was something I was going to say as well. Maybe a reputation of like emphasis on metrics and things. It's quite interesting for me because obviously I've like done some testing with you when near when we started working with each other and we've had a few phases where like we'll have a look at the numbers, but like it's like one piece of the puzzle and it feels like a relatively small piece of the puzzle the foundation of understanding how I climb and what strength I use has been like really helpful. It really helped us paint this picture of how I climbed, which then I feel influenced how we like approach training quite a lot. It was kind of like a tool that was helpful. It's not like our cope, my training or the coaching lives through numbers. And it's like, okay, well, this has been a successful training season because I now can hang X amount on an edge and things, which I think is helpful maybe to know that like, personal experience and reputation they they feel very different to me and like obviously most of my working with lattice has been personal experience it's maybe harder for me to like see that side that maybe people would come out from social media i thought it's maybe helpful for like a personal experience explanation point of view as well yeah yeah no i mean it's, it's totally true like we've tested a handful of times over the years but usually they just kind of get weirder and weirder tasks we're like <laughs> Let's see what you like on a flat edge. Oh, okay, this is, is good, but it could be better. Let's let's see what you like on this size edge. And then, okay, let's do all your individual fingers. Let's have a look <laughs> at your hand. God, that's a big pinky. And then, <laughs> like, and then, okay, what's going on with the shoulders? Let's try this. Let's try this. And, like, I've done it in the past where, say, an example where I use data, I'm like, I can tell your shoulders a really strong external rotation. I will send out, loads of uh, to loads of people i know or clients and say can you do these shoulder rotations for me and just tell me what the max is like i want you to be fully rested try and do this 
I'm not going to write a study with that data set whatsoever because it's pretty, you know, it's not exactly controlled. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But now I have, because of the sort of the size of the team, I mean, we have, so there's 20 coaches that work at Lattice um, and we all work together in person. All of like, they're all high level athletes. I'm pretty sure they're all the, pretty much all the strongest women in the UK as well. So, um, and you go, I ask them, okay, can you all do the shoulder rotations for me? So then you've just got a massive data set of really good climbers um, or different level climbers in different, you know, they're all good in their own genres. Um, I asked the clients to do the same. Okay, Aiden, I can see now, I thought you were good at this, but now I can tell that you're definitely good at this. Um, um, and I think that's really nice because I don't want you to spend ages doing something or believing something which is just based on me as a coach and what I've tried myself I want to go out and look at that that's where the data is useful um but once again it's it's not kind of always this hard line well that's it we're not going to do shoulder rotations again or you have to do this all the time it's okay how are your shoulders feeling let's try this out again okay it's dropped a little bit let's try and do a bit more um, you're going on this climb, let's do more of it. Um, and we've always done that in terms of, you know, we'll take a bit of this information, we'll make it more unique to your personal circumstance, and then we'll bounce around whether we use it or not. Yeah, like it's like a tool which helps make an informed decision Yeah, in relation to your, yeah, your climbing specifically. Yeah, yeah. Um, we had a variety of questions about strength training um, and by strength, I actually mean weight training. So sort of like max, max strength training. Um, and some of our, one of our, uh, patroons asked, uh, is hypertrophy important in training? So, you know, with the, with the kind of weight stuff, should they be looking to gain muscle mass or just gain strength? Um, I personally don't think it's necessary for everyone. Definitely not in terms of a targeted hypertrophy phase. Um, it is useful for a lot of people in different circumstances. Um, and rather than just giving a politician's answer, I'll try and give some <laughs> examples. Um, so I think uh, female climbers tend to benefit a lot more from hypertrophy uh, training because increased in muscle mass helps with um, better strength to weight ratio. And that's just been from experience, particularly focus on the upper body. Any climbers who are particularly skinny and don't struggle to put on muscle mass anyway training like a bodybuilder they're not going to become massive overnight so if you get a little bit more muscle mass then that's always a good thing um as long as you're able to cope with it for other climbers so like more muscular male climbers or often male climbers or muscular female climbers um it's often less important um because you're going to build that through strength work anyway. Like hyperch, like it's important to see that when you're doing training, same with energy systems, it's a spectrum and you're playing along the spectrum, but it's not siloed. So strength training, if I just started strength training, I hadn't done any, you will gain muscle mass hypertrophy. You will be going into that zone. If you do some strength training, your power will increase slightly. Like the closer you are to the thing next to that, that, elements so hypertrophy often comes near strength and max strength um you'll you'll have a little bit of crossover with that anyway so 
if you are more muscular, I wouldn't worry too much about doing hypertrophy. This counter to that, which is something that I've done a lot more in the last few years, is your rotator cuff and your forearm extensors go to town on them because they're really small muscle mass. You're not going to put much weight on um, quickly and the weight is going to be really, really useful because effectively the only reason not to get massive is because of skin and fingers. Um, So it's kind of trying to balance those two. If you are going through a hypertrophy phase, be kind to your fingers and give it time because they will take five times as long to adapt um, to the muscle mass that you've put on that isn't attached to your forearms. Mm. Do you um, do you do maintenance lifts in your programs or do you kind of cycle it on, cycle it off? Uh, depends who it is. The shoulder, I have a shoulder set of shoulder routines and shoulder workouts that I've, it's pretty much um, involved all year round. Um, and I think that's really important. I wouldn't say they're necessarily what you describe as the, the stereotypical max strength lifts or hypertrophy lifts. Um, I'll also um, add in snippets throughout the year, like uh, little intense periods of endurance work or lifts just to re-recruit everything and switch everything back on. So for a good example, um if we're doing you do a base season in the winter you try and perform in the spring i'll pretty much drop all the heavy lifts out uh stop doing as much work around the trunk but if you're pretty much like trying to climb as much outside as possible for the rest of the year until the next winter at the end of spring and the start of autumn i'll add in like a couple of weeks here and there of high volume work and some stuff like rack pull or bigger lifts and that just switches your body back on it remembers the message you had in winter and it helps you re-recruit in those muscle patterns um and it's kind of like a, that's how i maintain uh on stuff that's more fatiguing it's just add snippets in mm. at the right time anything health-based like the shoulder work can be more used throughout the season so is that about one of the only things that kind of everyone would get is some sort of shoulder uh work and some you said forearm work as well with with the weights um shoulder work yes active uh weighted mobility yes and it still goes up and down slightly um forearms no because um it is fatiguing and it can compromise your climbing if you do it at the wrong time so that's more cyclic as again um stuff around the trunk and pressing um definitely more cyclic and pulling muscles more cyclic Mm. We actually had a question from uh, someone as well. I'm reading some of the questions today <laughs> about um, about uh, looking for like a good example or definition of a base training phase in context of climbing. I think this is uh, they referenced the fact that I've mentioned it quite a lot. Um, I think when talking about my training, um, but wasn't quite sure of like how that would maybe uh differ from like a strength block or yeah essentially what a base training phase block was i was trying not to laugh at sam's uh look of incredulity of you stepping in on the questions <laughs> no no it's great. i've just i've been crossing them off as we've been going <laughs> oh wow you're on pen and paper I mean, yeah, I'm pen and paper, I, mate. I'm, I'm on my, I'm, I'm, I'm on the Discord. If, if I do, it, if I do it like this, then I mean, because sometimes we get to the end and we've got Patreon questions that 
I can't really remember if we've covered or not. Yeah, you actually had a lot of questions this week. Oh, nice. <laughs> um, so to answer your question about, uh, so a base phase is effectively the part of the season where you're putting in the foundation of work that will generally last throughout your peak performance season. So by that, we mean if you're trying to perform all year round, like some climbers do, your performance will kind of undulate naturally depending on your fatigue levels, what you're doing in your training. Um, And you could see yourself slowly improving. um, But often what you see is it's quite hard to predict when you're going to be climbing at your very best. So when we try to target certain areas of the year to perform better, and you see this in a lot in outdoor climbers where they climb best in the in the better seasons in the UK, often spring and autumn. Um, what you try to do is build in base training, not during that time, so that you can do loads of work which doesn't isn't as specific to your goal, and effectively builds a lot of the foundation of physiology. That means that when you come to the peak season, all your efforts can go on that performance. So a really good example to do with this is in the base season for a boulderer, that could be from, it could be in the summer, it could be in the winter when it's too wet to climb outside. They would do endurance work, they would do more volume of climbing, and they'd spend less time on top end max strength boulders or max strength power boulders. What they're trying to do is they're building uh, strength, um, density in their tendons. They're trying to build uh, their muscle mass in their forearms. They're trying to get more endurance in their energy systems. When it the base season is over and they're starting to perform, they can drop all that. That physiology stays with you because you've adapted it. There is physiological changes in your body. Then you change everything to be more specific to your goals in a peak performance phase or a build phase. And that means when you go outside, you can try as hard as you want or on projects indoors, you can try really hard. Then you don't have to go and do endurance training as well because those two things can often counteract each other. You're either going to be too tired from all this training to perform better outside or if you do max strength training and endurance training together, you can have some interference effect. So what you're trying to do is just allow more priority of time to perform at your best when you want to perform at your best. So you get all the other training done in that other season, the base season. Mm. And and to add to the sort of glossary, <laughs> we also had a question um, where someone was saying uh, they've heard people referencing a strength block, but they don't know if that means uh, increase in intensity or a whole different set of exercises or both. Um, so a strength block will effectively be a, a mesocycle or one or two mesocycles. So a mesocycle is like a couple of weeks of training um, where you've planned everything out for that for that cycle of training. So a normal one is three weeks of training, one week of deload where you're spending less time training and you're recovering from the three weeks of training. So that's a mesocycle. A strength block could be for that entire block. The primary focus of that block is strength training work. So that could be doing hard problems on the board, it could be doing conditioning exercises, focusing on strength rather than endurance or max strength, where it's fewer reps. And you can still do endurance and other things during that time, but the volume of those other things is lower 
and the priority is the strength block. Now, kind of like what I've said previously about how you see success, consider your opinion of success in training or your opi- uh, opinion of progression in training. Getting stronger might mean that you can do more of the same uh, weight for more sets. Um, that is that means you are stronger because you're able to do more, which probably means your max strength has gone up or you could change the intensity. So there's multiple ways of doing it. One thing that I think is really nice is say if you do two sessions a week of a training session, let's take pull-ups, doing three pull-ups, uh, you know, five sets of three pull-ups in a workout. Um, or you could go for, uh, who did you interview? Two sets of two twice a week. Oh, Drew. Um, Drew. <laughs> Two set, two, all right two sets of two twice a week with 20 kilos um <laughs> one arm one, size <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> one of the one of the sessions you're going to keep it as two sets of two but you go to 22 kilos 25 kilos 26 kilos that increases the other one you go two sets of two stays 20 kilos then you do two sets of three two sets of four two sets of five you're mm-hmm. still working that strength. It's a little bit more strength capacity. Like you're you're increasing the endurance at that level, but it's still working strength because it's in that zone. So there's multiple ways of doing it, but the strength block, what that means is, is that mesocycle or two mesocycles where the focus is to get stronger. Mm. Mm. Nice. There you go. I told you doing 26 kilo one armors. That sounds pretty good. that's how you answer the question how do i climb like aiden from now on (laughs) 26 kilogram one armors no can you do two two sets of two one armors aiden um i don't even know probably not to be honest (laughs) (laughs) maybe maybe if i was feeling i imagine not right now but maybe if i was feeling good i could fancy my chances on two one armors but you know we talked a lot about rack pull with your st- climbing style with your lower back being strong yes and, and then like we, we've kind of built it into recent years and it's kind of like i've kind of assumed this is like a, a long-term thing that we've done but it definitely wasn't um and i was like why did i think that he was good at rack pulls and i did before we chatted today i was like oh when did when did i start with aiden about a better double check and i did do some testing with you mid thigh pull which is effectively like a rack pull that was the first uh, time we were like yeah that was the first time i was in lattice hq yeah yeah and you've like you like hit some amazing scores doing that sort of uh that mid five thigh pull and every time you come back from a trip you've maintained that really strong lower back in a basic weight lift um, ah, I remember I my my takeaway from it because I hadn't done like you know there's some exercises where you don't know generally what is good uh there's some exercises I know more about like bench pressing or pull-ups and like oh, okay this is something I maybe got that is something maybe I'm like less good at that's like an exercise in which I have no idea like as in like the only thing I know about like deadlifting and things like that really is that I know like somebody's deadlifted 500 kilos and that is far more than i can ever conceive of doing that, that's the benchmark <laughs> yeah 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 but my my takeaway from that experience i remember go, like testing with the mid-thigh pull it's like an isometric wait no is it an yeah. Isometric? yeah the bar doesn't move but that's like 
you have a bar which you hold and it's attached to the floor and a force plate. And you basically, as if you were doing a deadlift with the bar, like in your mid thigh, so like the top part of the deadlift, you just try as hard as you can. So it's kind of like, it's maybe where you'd start a, or like partway through a rep of a rack pull. And yeah. you just try to the living end. And I just remember, it's it's quite a good feeling. <laughs> it just feels really unhealthy for you. Though. Like compressing your spine and just everything. Like trying absolute limit. But I remember it being quite satisfying. But having like, and thinking, oh, wow, that's a lot of force. But not really knowing whether or not there's a lot. So. Yeah, the, the funny bit with that test that we've got, the kit that we've got, is you're effectively standing on the thing that's holding the, the bar down. So you're pulling against your own feet. So you feel like you're doing a really ridiculous movement and you're trying as hard as possible, but all you're doing is fighting yourself, kind of like a layback without moving. Um, it's, kind of, it's kind of the idea of standing in some buckets and trying to lift them off the ground. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but whenever this is kind of an example of these like weightlifting exercises and stuff that I do testing-wise with, with Aiden, it's a good idea for people to do, is you'll find out what you maintain through climbing by just going through a load of tests after periods of just climbing. So Aiden did that before doing any lifting. Then after, throughout the years, I've got these notes of doing those rack pulls. And when you came back from Switzerland and you've always hit about this kind of level there or thereabouts. And if it has seemed to drop, you give it a couple of weeks and it's back up again. So it's a natural capability. And you could either ride that even further and say, that's good for your climbing style. Or you could say, well, you're doing pretty well already and you're progressing in other areas. Let's not bother pushing that a bit too much for now. Um, the same with like your, your shoulder rotations, like you trained them, you came back from Switzerland, they were stronger. Okay. Your yeah. climbing is probably doing that for you. Let's not worry too much about doing that in the gym. Yeah. Mm. That, that is like, um, that is another <laughs> I think interesting case for numbers. And I've spoken about that specific example of like external rotations when climbing in Switzerland and things of like, that's when numbers are quite helpful to kind of understand your climbing style. And like, yeah, that was a really prominent one for me of like not really doing any strength training, just climbing outside and seeing improvement in like an exercise, which like maybe some people wouldn't even normally consider as like super climbing specific. But obviously but, applies really well to my climbing style. The, the downside I have now is everyone comes up to me and if any exercise that you're doing, they go, what can Aiden do in that position? What can Aiden <laughs> do on that move? Like, yeah. I it's, think not, I, it's not I, relevant to you. <laughs> I found my niche of the old external rotation. I get that question a lot now. Yeah. I, I mean, mean I, it was phenomenal. I, I mean, I, I, I'm genuinely curious seeing what other people can do just because to see how phenomenal it was. <laughs> one day there'll be like a competition for external rotations and then you'll know oh i would have had the world record <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah i'm not going to claim credit but i, I see a lot of people doing external rotations in the climbing world these days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. i did have i had my little phase of banging on the mountain <laughs> high angle crimping my god <laughs> and external rotation but that is another thing example of like miscommunication right and obviously it was something that was really helpful for me but there was like an assumption that i spoke i spoke on the nugget podcast quite a bit about it i mentioned it a few times um there's an expectation that because i'm like preaching how helpful it was to me that 
I'm giving advice to everyone to try it. And it was kind of like a fad. Yeah. Or they do it all year round. Yeah. 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 This is what I did. Would you agree that it's something I've said on this podcast before that in general, I think people are better off training to get better at their own style rather than training to climb like Aiden? Yes, generally. I think you've got to use your own attributes and work around your own limitations. I would say if there is something that gets in the way or if you are really passionate to change, then definitely go for it. So one example I can think about is um, you imagine like someone like uh, Alex in uh, London on the board. Lamel. 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 Yeah, we had him on the pod. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really early on. <laughs> so lo- lo- lovely guy, amazing, like floaty climber. But say he spends a lot of time obviously climbing in London on that board. And for him to excel even further at his style, you know, it's going to be it's going to be hard to do. I know he's, I think he's had several injuries and stuff, hasn't he? But if he went, do you know what? I'm going to try and climb like Aiden for a bit. It's a completely different way for him, but he gets mm. to go through the beginner's mind process all again. He gets to work on all these attributes of his body and physiology that are different. And that's kind of like a cool way to do it, isn't it? So I think if you want to improve and perform on rock or on a certain style, you use your own attributes and what you're good and bad at um, that works for that style on like the best way for that style. But if you are interested, mix it up a little bit like i think for aiden style and i've said this before um which i'm i'm not sure you've totally bought into this bit uh, or not yeah aiden is uh your peak performance and your so i don't know coup de gras and climbing is going to be power because i think it will have it'll effectively locking stuff down is going to be it's going to come down to kind of height at some point in terms of being able to do massive moves and locking stuff down. Um, but you've got the ability to be really powerful and got the string finger strength and the control in the shoulders. And if you can combine all of that, I can imagine that's where the level will step up, where it's going to be that next level. Yeah. The final the evolution yeah. of Aiden. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's like, yeah, no. I was, I was deceleration, but with a massive acceleration at the start. That's yeah, the yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I was kind of going to ex- extend that point in terms of operating within your comfort zone, but kind of trying things which maybe are outside of that can actually have benefits and crossovers, which are maybe unpredictable as well. Maybe I am normally a static climber, and like if I were to do a load more external rotation work or like work in that hang or crimp, like I could maybe get better at that kind of thing. But then also over the winter, I put loads of work into engaging quick on halts and being more powerful. And uh, and then you like find examples, which like combine them. So for example, I spent loads of time working on a project in my home in the Lake District where you basically take, take some edges and they're pretty bad edges and you get your like chest as high as you can. You have to get like a lot of stability in the position and in the legs uh, but you are a little bit outside of your box and the edges are a bit too flat to like lock it down slowly. So you slow it down as much as you can to be precise enough to engage a hole quickly. And it's kind of like the training of like 
being powerful and jumping around on edges, getting used to engaging fast was kind of like crucial for that. But I also needed like the stability in the shoulders and in that position. It's something that like I maybe wouldn't have given given a chance if I like just didn't have the ability to apply that rate of force when I actually got to the hold. So like maybe I've worked on something which feels like it's outside my normal style, but it's applied well to the rock, even in the context of the way that I climb. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, in terms of, and like the speed that you climbed at changed quite a lot this winter. Um, and you saw the benefits of that, not on everything, but it was like, it was kind of curious to see like mm. locking stuff down, but then being willing to be a little bit more out of control. Um, and I think it's always a balance. Like, I think I've, I've heard, and I know a bit about your uh, climbing, Sam, but I haven't actually seen you climb too much. You're, are you a quite a poppy, powerful climber? Um, no not really no No, i mean you're kind of quite powerful i'm pretty slow as well yeah pretty normally pretty slow yeah you're a slow climber you're very front wheel drive i'd say yeah (laughs) (laughs) it's the kindest way of saying crap footwork isn't it that (laughs) 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 but also it's a it's a backhanded compliment because you pretty <laughs> that's, that's not that's not better Aiden, saying, no no it's a backhanded compliment <laughs> yeah no, i'm kind of being that <laughs> i could get hit by you the get... backhand <laughs> <laughs> Damn. <laughs> I don't know what to say now. <laughs> that's um that's a good example to answer your question though for you sam it's like your if your style is more front drive using your upper body a lot would i suggest you try and train in a different way you could train your legs loads in terms of active mobility effectively what aiden did when he broke his wrist or uh, injured his wrist it's not going to affect your current style but it's it's going to be changing it slightly and i think the overall package will mm. you'd become a better climber and luckily when you're looking at that differentiation of effort it's not going to cost you anything to train your legs other than time um and you know a bit of doms in your lower legs there was there was doms they're bloody devastating doms (laughs) 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 weighted mobility is hard work but there was there was a whole another thing that happened with me which is like quite it's like different it's a bit off the wall did quite a lot of um uh conditioning and i gained a fair bit of weight and got quite a lot stronger um, but my problem is I've got no coordination. I'm really mal-coordinated. And that's really why I'm so front-wheel drive, because I struggle to coordinate my feet at the same time. And that meant that I couldn't... I was stronger in all metrics, but I couldn't coordinate it on the mm-hmm. wall. And so when I lost the weight and immediately started climbing better... Yeah, yeah. Um, I think um, that sort of side of things is kind of like that gymnastic comment I made earlier. I think one thing with with muscle mass and gains is it does change movement patterns. Your, your center of mass changes, your, your pulling power changes. And like you say, it's a whole new coordination pattern. Do you have to stick with that and wait another year or something for it to kick in? Or this is why I'm, I'm personally quite careful with hypertrophy being in the right areas and seeing changes sort of systematically happening. Um, but for you in that style, I guess one of the things that would stand out to me is every training session has to include coordination. Mm. It has to, like you have to be pushed in terms of 
corn like there's there's a le- there's no you can make gains there 100 mm. it's like it's one of those things it might not be something you're naturally good at that every session has to be coordination based the same with uh say in terms of that like static approach versus power the message to the body if it's static is be static control 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 and the, the noise from the coordination and the speed has to be so much louder to be heard so mm-hmm. it has to become like a prevalent part but it's not particularly an easy thing but it just requires like a lot of mental energy and work but i can't see it being a detriment in that way but you are right i think if someone is less coordinated i think quick changes in style particularly and muscle mass isn't the most conducive it has to be um a drip feed if it's someone like who's a comp athlete that's got all different styles and they can move between them i think it doesn't matter as much but i think we went through a phase I thought, I think in the 2010s of getting everyone to focus on their weaknesses, work your weaknesses, you've got to work your weaknesses. This is plugging mm. the holes. And actually all you've done is you lost your superpower. Um, so you've got to keep that, allow it to manipulate a little bit. If there is a major weakness, plug it in a bit, but it's got to be in a, in a balanced format. Um, but the intent of the session is key the whole time. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think the weaknesses thing is so much more important in comps than in rocks when you are still sort of choosing. And I think there is also like a kind of an assumption that you should have to climb everything. Yeah. Whereas in reality, I climb for fun. I don't climb slabs because I don't like them, and that's fine. <laughs> like, and I don't really care. Um, whereas if oh, I was yeah. a comp climber, I'd have to, you know, sort that out. I, I have. I've always got so because I I'm very much an all round climber in terms of uh, genres of climbing, but I think there's so much um, kind of beauty in being into a specific style and a, a genre, and uh, it's kind of like the thing that, you know you want the thing that you don't have the ability. Mm. Like for me, it's kind of like that ability. Like I look at say coming back to say like Barrows for example again, um, he's so good at his style. And then, like, Tom is a phenomenal crack climber. He's a pretty average, normal climber. And then he changed into slab climbing, and he got, like, good at that. And I think, like, I think, I mean, you're psyched on the the word mastery. Like, if you can lean into that and you can lean into the places you climb and the style that you climb, I think there's proper beauty in that. Whereas, like, you look at the fell runners in the Lake District that have, you know, they still live in the same village that they always lived in. They know the fells like the back of the hands. I think that's awesome. Um, I don't think it's right for everyone, but I think, you know, to tell them you should travel, you should do this. Why did you try and do road racing? Why don't you try and do this? And the same with climbing styles, like Sam, you're so strong. Why don't you go into font and spend ages on this slopey problem, uh, compression problem or slab or, you know, why haven't you done this problem? It's like, shut up. <laughs> it's yeah, like, yeah. I, don't, I, don't I don't want to. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to. It's like, for God's sake, this yeah. is one of the few sports where I don't have to do anything that you tell me. It's so, the same thing as, uh, it's like the same philosophy that sometimes goes when you go somewhere to like a new area with someone and they're like, that's a classic. You've got to get on it. And you look at it and you're like, mm. and like, you've got to get on it. <laughs> I don't yeah, want yeah. to though. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I, I, yeah. I, I definitely really struggled with that. I mean, for me personally, when I went to university, I was in Bangor in North Wales and 
I went there as a bit of a boulder. I went there as a boulderer, learned to trad climb. And I think in the pretty much second year, I effectively quit climbing because everyone was so bothered about what each other was doing. They're like, mm. oh, you've got to do left wall. You've got to do right wall. What have you been up to today? Oh, you've only done that. You should have onsighted it. That was a big thing. Why didn't you onsight? Why didn't you onsight? And I was like, I'm going to start running. This is shit. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, you should start jogging. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I was just like, I, and, and I thought the whole point of doing this was because I used to do what I wanted when I wanted. Yeah, and, yeah. And that, yeah. that's climbing. And now, yeah, I'm, I'm done with it. And luckily, I fell back in love with the sport. Um, but I've kept that in mind of every time I feel like I should, I just remind myself you shouldn't do anything. Like, should is such a shit word. It's like yeah. it's got so much uh, loading behind it, but could do something, want to do something. That's a whole different meaning. Yeah. Um, yeah. We've had, I think we, we've spoken a bit about this in the much wider context of like more modern media as well, kind of feeling the pressures to like do things which maybe aren't so genuine, making decisions or leading your life through like the influence of others as well. It's, well, you must have this not. a lot at the moment with, say, like burden. Like, I get asked loads about sort of your motivations for burden oh yeah and, yeah yeah and i'm just like he's i was like oh yeah so it, it is kind of a bore but it's not your style there's a massive learning process and just like to be there and everyone's kind of going oh do you have to does he feel he has to do it I'm like well not really because he's definitely spending time on another project at the same time so it's like it's it, it's gone it's gone on a climbing trip that's yeah. what he's doing. The climbing yeah. world's obsession with burden is also. Yeah, me and Sam, I actually don't think a podcast has gone out yet. It did today, went out today. Oh, yeah, it's Wednesday. Yeah, I spoke about, uh, like, did a little Finland update, and a lot of it was around it, that kind of topic of, like, because I'm here, like, the feeling of whether I need, like, have to be trying it. And, like, I've gone through phases whilst I've been here where, like, I've wanted to try it. And actually I'm in a place now where I'm quite looking forward to getting back on it again. My skin is better, so a bit more fun to try it. It's been quite nice to reclaim some of that autonomy and be like, oh, actually the boulder is there. I could go and try it if I wanted to, if it's dry, which it hasn't been for a while. But like, <laughs> like I could just go and try it. But it's quite nice to like make that decision and actually view it from preference and be like, oh, actually, no, I want to go to this other project or like yesterday one of the local guys took me out on a boat and we explored some archipelago and I did some first ascents and it was utterly amazing. I was doing a bunch of easier climbing, but like in such a novel place, like it wasn't really even, the climb didn't even matter so much when it was there. And I mean, it was really nice to find some dry rock after a while. It's kind of nice to make those decisions. Originally, I, my plan was to go try and dry, dry out burden, but instead went on this boat. And it's kind of like nice to be like, oh, actually, yeah. That was like a good decision. Say, yeah. Yeah. You're kind of like, oh, there's no reason that I need to go and do yeah. that. Like I'm no. doing this for myself. Kind There's of thing. absolutely no reason to go try burden if you don't want to. <laughs> yeah. 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 So just keep, it's... just keep tipping buckets of water down it, mate. Oh, it's wet <laughs> oh, still. It's, <laughs> oh, it's wet again. <laughs> I, I, would, I, I do wonder if, um, you know, people listening, because I think you have a really good um, sort of social media presence and presence on here in terms of like the way you talk about climbing and mindset. I can genuinely say, like I said this to you the other day on messages, like it's so cool to see you want to be there, you're enjoying it, 
you're calm you've got a good headspace with this like you are genuinely having a really good time and you know enjoying the moments when you climb with your mates enjoying the moments when there's more solitary and I think I think it's really cool and it is very very genuine um I've seen when you've been trying to do things where you've been less psyched or you didn't want to be there um I remember last year when you were I think you'd you were trying to do two eight C's in a day and all of a sudden you start getting in your head hadn't you about your mindset around that Two eighty pluses, just like two eighty pluses. <laughs> I love the guy, don't you? <laughs> you're great, Jason. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just, just you know, yeah. just, just saying it. <laughs> Got to keep up appearances. Yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that that was a really good example. Yeah, yeah. yeah we actually mentioned on that. your headspace. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Yeah, not like I, that with Verdim. No, well, I kind of like. I don't feel like it. Yeah. Uh, I think I have more confidence in my like independence as well. I feel less influenced by just the outside world. I kind of have more conviction about what I'm doing and why I'm doing it, which isn't quite a nice place to be. Yeah, and, like, and like you said, Sam, it's the right. You don't have to do anything you don't want to do. So. Yeah. <laughs> we, um, yeah. We try to try and keep these podcasts for about two hours because that's when people stop listening and we've massively failed to do that today. <laughs> but yet oh, I wow. still have... We have. I still have one question that I want to ask because it was one of the patrons asked it. I think it's quite fun. It's a nice place to leave it, which is we've just been speaking about Aiden's headspace, but one of our patrons was quite interested to hear about what your headspace was like watching Toby on that last lead wall to qualify for the Olympics. Oh, yeah, I was uh, definitely, definitely freaking out watching it. It's been, uh, yeah, it's been, it's been a very, it's been a very long journey. And I think with, um, like early in the year the wind's there and then burn having like some mixed performances and getting close but not quite there so i said um i, I messaged toby this after so his first his boulder world cup that he won was on my wedding day his lead world cup that he won was on my honeymoon and <laughs> when he won on and qualified was my birthday um so i was like but yeah you need to keep time in these special occasions for me because i'm already celebrating and i've often got i had champagne in my hand for my wedding uh i was drinking wine with my wife in my honeymoon i had a pint with a load of mates watching with uh for my birthday so i was already celebrating either way so it was going to go down great <laughs> so basically whenever the olympics is you're going to have to pretend that's some big event for you exactly, exactly. oh not july 17th <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. a watching oh, pie <laughs> I'll, I'll have to be watching from uh a big wall in Kyrgyzstan, unfortunately. Oh, okay. oh God, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I might be, I might be slow to the party on that one. <laughs> yeah, finding data <laughs> in the middle of Kyrgyzstan <laughs> might be a challenge. Yeah. Oh wow, yeah, that's going to add another dimension to your trip. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I hope that goes well. Um, yeah, Kyrgyzstan thanks. climbing has only come up once before in this podcast, and not in a particularly good light. Uh, How's that, that best? That was Beth. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah that's true. So, I mean, you don't yeah. get the similar experience. <laughs> we, we, I, I was trying to, we were asking clients and, because um, we, we've, we've got quite a few clients that have been there, like, uh, and got information from them about, like, logistics and stuff. Uh, so the client, like, uh, climbers have been on trips there. 
And uh, I was like, oh, who do, who do I know that I've worked with who's been to Kyrgyzstan? And I was like, I can't ask Tommy. I was just, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He, he's the wrong person to talk to. <laughs> oh, so yeah, what did he think of the climbing there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Forget about that bit. You know, what was, what was the rock like? <laughs> yeah, where, where did you get food from? <laughs> <laughs> A good choice. Tact, you can say. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. Well, on that, on that note, uh, thanks so much for coming, Ollie. That was great. That yeah, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, th- uh, thank you so much for taking the time, Ollie. And um, no doubt we'll be uh, in touch very soon. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks very much. I've, um, I think, like I said, you, you guys are doing an awesome job. So I, I've pretty much every fingerboard or stretching session, I've pretty much got one of your guys' podcast on. So yeah, <laughs> perfect. I, I appreciate the work. Goes in. <laughs> no, That's what we're you. here for. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. W- I won't be listening to this one but you know let's get to the next <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's hard to listen to your own voice sometimes eh? <laughs> so so Sam that's yeah that's Aiden's reason why he hasn't listened to a single one back ever <laughs> <laughs> no I've listened to the one I've listened to the one you did with me brother <laughs> oh yeah yeah true <laughs> oh, nice yeah. well uh, yeah thanks for taking the time again and um, yeah I'll keep in touch hey yeah yeah <laughs> i'm sure i'll talk to you in the next few days yeah yeah, um, yeah it's nice to uh chat to you sam and um yeah absolutely yeah, thanks for everything cool Bye. all right see you guys see you bro. See ya. Bye.